Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of June 22nd, 2021. There are a ton of books, kind of DC books coming out this week, 16 books. We're going to be talking about everything except for uh, The Dreaming Waking Hours, number 11, which I, I hear really good things about, but, but I've never read a single issue. So uh, we're not going to talk about that one, but everything else we're going to try to cover, um, which includes a couple of double-sized issues uh, or, or exercise issues, plus the uh, Wonder Woman Black and Gold Anthology. So there's going to be a lot to get to. Uh, we're going to try to keep this right around two hours, uh, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, I know that once once Rocky and I start going, getting excited about these books, we, we tend to uh, talk a lot, but we're going to try it. There's a few I don't have that much to say about. I, I felt overall, this was a, an interesting week. I, I've kind of felt like there was nothing that like blew me away, but there was nothing that was really terrible. So it was just kind of a, like kind of a, a meh week. Kind of a meh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a meat and potatoes type week. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll, we're going to dive into it. We're going to start with a book that's been been pretty solid uh, since the new creative team took over. That's Wonder Woman 774, uh, written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. We get a, a fill-in artist or probably a guest artist this, uh, this week. Andy McDonald handles it as opposed to Travis Moore. Colors are by Nick Filardi. Letters are by Pat Brousseau. And we saw last time, I, I think we, in it, uh, I think I actually made the mistake of thinking that after Wonder Woman had left Valhalla, that she was actually in Themyscira and saw Themyscira uh, in ruins, burning, what have you. Turns out it's Olympus. Um, and so she showed up there. She finds out the, uh, the Olympian gods are dead. And she finds another god there, and he's actually a Roman god, Janus, who many will recognize that name as the, the two-faced god, right, that has two different natures, one good, one bad. Um, and through the course of her exploration, she finds Janus there. Like, who, you know, who are you? I don't recognize you. I know all the gods of Olympus. Hey, I'm Janus. There's not actually a, a Greek equivalent of Janus uh, in mythology. And so Hermes thought it would be cool for, to bring me over. But apparently because of some sort of prophecy or, or what have you, that somebody was going to destroy uh, Olympus, Janus separated his two halves. And, and this is the part of the story that doesn't really make that much sense to me. But I'm like, if you know that one half of you is bad and one half of you is good, why would you trust the bad half of you that says, oh, let's, let's separate ourselves because the bad half apparently can see the future. And then, of course, the bad half goes on a rampage and kills all the gods. Like, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah. You're separating the worst parts of yourself. Uh, yeah. But be that as it may, Wonder Woman then uh, has to go to the graveyard of the gods, which I feel like this is what we heard about, right? This is what we heard about. Uh, we saw it in Dark Knight's Death Metal, it was mentioned. And then we heard after the way Dark Knight's Death Metal ended that the reason Wonder Woman wouldn't be in the main continuity is because she was going to be in the graveyard of the gods. But then when the regular Wonder Woman book started, that wasn't what we had at all. She was in Valhalla, right? And we actually got a pretty solid story. It's almost like, in a way, that was set up because it does sort of tie in to to this here when she returns to Olympus and all the gods are dead. I mean, maybe it was a way to take her off the, you know, the game board so that the gods could be killed because if she was on Earth or she was in uh, Olympus, you know, at in Themyscira, she would have known that Olympus was in trouble. She could have gone there to stop Janos. So maybe Janos is the evil side of Janos being able to 
predict the future, manipulated things, sent her to Valhalla afterlife instead of sending her to um, Olympus or somewhere else. And so now she finally is, uh, we see in this issue, heading to the graveyard of the gods to try to rescue um, the gods of, of Olympus. And Boston Brand apparently is still going to remain a, uh, a supporting character in, in the book. So it's a pretty interesting story. It's, like I said, kind of where we expected Wonder Woman to be, where we were told she would be, um, and why she's not interacting or, or, you know, part of the main sort of DC continuity going forward right now. Um, and will she be able to save them or not? Uh, one, one of the things I do like about the story is it really is showing how how powerful Wonder Woman is. And there's been various stories over the years that have done that, some better than others. But when you think about it, and especially when you think about how long-lived she is and how strong – I mean, she's supposed to rival Superman. But personally, I never think of her as somebody as, as strong as Superman, right? She's a secondary – in terms of power level, she's secondary to him in, in my mind. And this story is is kind of changing that, and I think it should because I don't think she I should. And again, that's my own preconceptions that I bring to the character. I recognize that, but she really is just as powerful as Superman, if not maybe more powerful. Um, and so I do like that that is being sort of pushed to the forefront. As far as the Andy McDonald art, I mean Andy McDonald is a, is a solid artist, um, and he can draw some really strange things at times. Um, but I don't know that his art is suited for Wonder Woman. I mean, the, the art's fine. I have no particular complaints about it. Um, other than it, she just, Wonder Woman doesn't look as feminine as I kind of prefer her to look. And again, just a personal choice, but I have no problem with any of the, the storytelling or the transitions from panel to panel. Um, the line work is, is uh, it's a little heavy for my taste, but uh, overall I thought the artwork was solid. I, I think where it shines the most is in the colors. Um, I think those are done really well. And it is a really dialogue heavy book as well. So I'll give uh, credit to, uh, to Pat Brousseau um, for keeping it moving because it is a very, there's a lot of dialogue in this book, like a lot. Um, but the best part about the art, like I said, is the, the Nick Filardi color. So all in all solid. Um, I'm, I'm still on board with one Roman, still picking it up, uh, you know, week in, week out. I, I feel like, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, it's been a consistently above average book at its worst. And at its best, we've had a few issues that were awesome. Um, so overall, the quality of what they've done, it it's definitely better than what we had previously when uh, Mariko Tamaki was on the book, and it was wildly inconsistent. So overall, I enjoyed it. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, yeah. Overall, it was okay. I actually thought that was, uh, for some reason, I thought this kind of, I felt this went a little bit backwards for me. I, I, I'm having a hard time. I'm, I have a more difficult time than than you than you appear to have with the whole. Rec- I have a hard time reconciling the fact that if she died, I don't understand how. I mean, if she's dead, she's dead. But but she. She decided to come back. She Wonder Woman decided in Infinite Frontier Zero that she wasn't going to join join the Quintessence, which is a good thing because Darkseid wiped out the Quintess- Quintessence. I can't reconcile the first storyline with this. So she so she didn't die, but then she but then I guess she did, or she got she she didn't join the Quintessence. So that means she didn't die, but yet she did die, and she comes back and instead of going to uh, Olympus, where she should have gone if she died, she went to to Valhalla, which was the Norse god heaven, Valhalla. 
but she wasn't because this Roman god Janus switched places with her and Janus's evil self sort of switched places with her and 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 destroyed all the gods of Olympus and now all the gods of Olympus are in the graveyard of the gods. I don't understand the point of Wonder Woman going to the graveyard of the gods. If the gods are dead, she doesn't have the power to resurrect them. Like, if they're dead, they're dead. If gods, got, the gods are already dead. She, Wonder Woman doesn't have the power to resurrect gods, does she? I don't understand this. I, I don't understand this. And, and maybe, maybe there's, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I just, this whole thing just seems, I don't understand the continuity here. I don't. I'm. I'm trying to make make sense of it. How it fits in with Infinite Frontier. I. It. It doesn't make sense to me if she. Like I don't understand if she finds the gods of Olympus, they're dead. So she. How can she bring them back? Or she's. She's going to bring them back from the graveyards to the gods to Olympus. Why? So they can live out the afterlife on Olympus. Well, they're in the graveyards of the gods. Is the graveyard of the gods that bad a place? It's called the graveyard of the gods, isn't that where they're supposed to go? It's called the graveyard of the gods. I don't, I don't understand it. It's not adequately explained. And um, by the way, I've read Wonder Woman for for decades, and I and I always I always struggle with her mythology. So I, <laughs> I'll, I'll happily fall upon my sword on this one. But uh, I I found this extremely frustrating. I also thought Dead Man was an idiot for not being honest with Wonder Woman up front. He knew about the destruction of uh, Olympus, didn't bother telling Wonder Woman, and he sort of apologized for that. I thought that was ridiculous. Uh, I. The art, I like the art. I actually like the rougher art. I like the rougher exterior for Wonder Woman uh, because it reminds me a little. It reminds me more of the roughness of uh, of Wonder Woman: Dead Earth by Daniel Warren Daniel Warren Johnson. I really like that. So it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. Some of that sensibility. But but overall, I'm kind of curious to see how things end up. Uh, but you know, I. I'm I'm curious to know how this is going to reconcile with uh, Infinite Frontier because I don't get it. If everything matters, well, everything might matter, but I I like to think everything's supposed to make a little bit more sense. But uh, maybe I'm an outlier here. You seem to be able to figure it out better than I can. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there were there were a couple of uh, story beats that kind of sort of explained. I think your two biggest biggest complaints. Um, yeah, she chose not to be. Part of the Wonder Woman chose not to be part of the quintessence and was supposed to be returned to to life. But uh, the squirrel, um, he even said, uh, "Maybe I hear a great warrior will need a place to stay, so maybe I pull string to get her in Asgard, all to save Yggdrasil." So I think he, Ig, the squirrel, basically intercepted uh, Wonder Woman on her way back. She was being sent back to Olympus, is my understanding, the way I'd read it. She was being sent. She didn't. She chose not to be part of the quintessence. Quintessence used her their power, and we're supposed to send her back to Olympus. Uh, Ratatosk, whatever the, I think that's how you pronounce the squirrel's name. Pulled yeah. some strings, got her to Valhalla in order to save the the tree of life. Yeah. Um, a squirrel did as, that. A, a squirrel yeah, did squirrel. that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the squirrel. The squirrel must. Somebody must have owed the squirrel a favor. I mean, he said. He said. <laughs> And maybe I pull string to get her in Asgard. Who knows uh, who he, yeah. I mean, maybe the squirrel has, you know, the, yeah. the ear of Phantom Stranger or somebody else on the quintessence and he, he got Wonder Woman sent there. So that, that whatever. I mean, it, it's fine. Yeah. It, I, I don't oh, know. That, yeah. It's not important. The, the other thing, as far as the graveyard of the gods and everybody, you know, you're saying, you know, dead is dead or what have you. Again, I'll point back to death metal where Wonder Woman went to the graveyard of gods and was able to, to return because here, the good side of Janus even says, you can't go to the graveyard of the gods. Nobody, there's never any returning from that place. 
you'll never make it back. And Wonder Woman says, yes, yeah, someone told me that the last time I went there. So she's gone to the graveyard of gods and, and returned. And so I, I, I think that she believes that she can go to the graveyard of gods and resurrect the gods of Olympus um, and save them is, is my thinking. Yeah. Uh, that's the way I read it anyway. I yeah, mean, no, that, that, that's right. I just, you know, it just seems and, a little bit, uh, it, it yeah, seems whether, forced to me, my, myself. It seems a little bit convenient, but, but I hear you. No, it's, uh, I read you. Yeah, I mean, whether, whether or not they deserve to be resurrected or should be resurrected, <laughs> I mean, that's a whole other yeah. story. And they seem to be kind of jealous and petty at times and cause her no end of grief especially Aries. So why wouldn't you just leave him dead? I, you know, whatever. Um, as far as the backup story, um, it's that young Diana story that we've been talking about ever since this, um, ever since the end of future state in, in wonder woman written by Jordi Belair, art by Paulina Gunshow, colors by Kendall good letters by Becca Carey. Um, you know, we're starting to sound like a broken record here. It does. It's just, uh, it, it's an all ages wonder woman story. And it's very interesting in, in what it does. And the art is very, cool to look at it's it's very you know all ages kid friendly but it just it i mean with all these crazy big ideas and complicated um mythology and what have you and and i will give credit to conrad and and uh, clooney for continuing to mix mythologies you know first we had north mythology mixed with greek and now we've got greek mixed mixed with roman that's really cool and building on sort of the the background of Wonder Woman, I do like that. Uh, but it is pretty complicated and hard to follow. But then you throw this all ages thing in here um, for eight pages or 10 pages or whatever it is. It just doesn't make sense. Um, that being said, the story itself is is good. I mean, I like the story, uh, even though it does tend to be a little bit uh, narratively heavy as well with the, the dialogue boxes, kind of like the, the main story is in this particular issue as well. Um, but I do think it's I do think it's worth reading. Uh, especially for younger fans of, of Wonder Woman. But, man, as we've said before, hopefully they're going to collect this on, in its own kind of thing um, because I, I, I just like where it seems to be going. It very much seems to be um, life lessons for a young Diana uh, who's trying to find her place in the world. And, she, you know, despite the fact that she's a princess and despite the fact that she has all this legacy and inheritance and, and uh, expectations to live up to, she feels out of place and misunderstood and um, lonely at times. And so I think there's a lot of relatability there for young readers yeah. um, that no matter who you are, you, you can at times, you know, deal with those sort of negative emotions. Uh, and I imagine that Diana is going to overcome them in, in a positive way. And again, I think that's a great, um, a great thing for young readers to see. Um, but I just don't know if young readers are going to see it when it's, you know, buried behind a main story that's very adult themed. Um, not to say that the main story is super violent or has sexual themes or anything. It's just very complicated and hard to follow. Um, and I think it requires a much more discerning sort of um, intelligence to understand it. So to put this all ages uh, story in the back again, I just, I'm not sure it's the, it's the right place. Don't, don't agree with it. So uh, anything to add to that Rocky? Uh, not much, no. I, I will say that I, I do think it's a decent enough story uh, about a young Diana learning a lesson. She's uh, Clearly, there's a nefarious force trying to manipulate her emotions uh, as a young child, trying to get into her head and, and is being quite successful at it. And she's being manipulated and she doesn't realize it. And that's the point of the story. And I think I think it's a good one because I think, you know, obviously uh, young readers can probably relate to that because they don't know who to trust and, and they feel lonely at times. And so I think it's, I think it's playing, I, I think it's, 
it's right. It just it's just jarring because I'm I'm more vested in the in the other story just because of I think just because we're older and this one is more of a child's uh, story and maybe it's got something to say. But um, I guess say it's like say good story. It's just a, an odd pairing, just an odd pairing. But yeah, know. agree. Uh, all right, up next, Superman number thirty-two, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art is by Scott Scott Godlewski. Colors by Gabe Eltab. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, what this is uh, the one who fell part three last uh, part of this cosmic story that Kennedy Johnson's telling. Uh, what did you think? Uh, I didn't, uh, this is another one that I breezed over. I, I, uh, this is, uh, this is one that I never really, uh, I haven't really been behind of this. I, this story has just been boring to me. This was just uh, John Kent and, and his father going off to this other planet and Philip, writer Philip Kennedy Johnson is trying to draw this analogy between this this king, this king on, on another planet, this Quarath O'Dannon was a king who ruled by fear, and his son was Quarath O'Bacchus, who was uh, he viewed his son as being weaker, uh, but was more more cerebral and 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 was more of a, a scientist, and and uh, there's this creature that. I guess takes over the souls of different life forms, and uh, Superman helped helped Korath Danum to defeat this creature early on. And over the course of this, what is this, the third or fourth issue now? This has just been dragging this story out ad nauseum to sort of in in a in what I consider to be a semi-successful but mostly vain attempt to try to. Uh, build on and establish a better relationship between John and Superman, because let's face it, uh, Superman has missed most of Jonathan Kent's formative years. And in fact, the ending says it all here, where where Superman is so proud of his son, John, at the end of this, he basically says that, you know, uh, it, it's speaking to the Bendis story. It's saying, you know, I don't know. I know that you went through so much, John, but, you know, you're, you're just amazing. I can't believe after everything you went through during the years that you weren't part of our life, uh, that, that you turned out okay and you must have been traumatized. And I mean, he's referring, I mean, he's not coming out and saying it, but he's referring to the fact of, of the seven years of what John went through, which we know he was on Earth 3. And Philip Kennedy Johnson is basically saying that, you know, it's, it's clear that they're not going to deal with it. They're not going to deal with the trauma. They're going to breeze over it. And that John Kent is so spectacular that he was unaffected by it. He's perfect. He, he's perfect. He came through clean. He's perfectly fine. Nothing to see here. I had uh, nothing worth reading about. I had no traumas from my experience. I'm just a perfect John Kent. And not only that, now I got an extra power, even though I only got half my, 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 half my genes from my father, I got an extra vision power because now I got hypervision or some hyperviolet vision, uh, that my dad, that my daddy doesn't have. So I'm even better than my dad. Uh, of course, he might not feel that way, but they're propping him up. This feels forced to me. This feels unearned to me. This feels like, well, we're not going to take the time to naturally develop this relationship. Uh, so let's just, uh, we're just going to force it. And that's how it feels like to me. I still, I still, obviously, you can tell by my review that I have uh, some residual feelings <laughs> from from us being deprived of a, of a young super son, but uh, you know, but but this was okay. I, I'm gonna. It's this is not Philip Kennedy Johnson's fault. He does a PKJ does a reasonably good job 
of at the end, bringing this home, and at least he's trying. He's saying, look, he's acknowledging, he's acknowledging John Ken's past, and he's saying, despite that, this is still a really good kid, and his dad loves him, and he's pretty good at what he does. So for that, I'll give him props, and that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> what do you feel? What do you, how do you feel about it, Jace? Well, I, first of all, I, I, I sort of disagree that it's going to be glossed over. Um, the trauma that John endured, right? Because it, I mean, if you read the story, it's 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 that's what Superman thinks. That's what Clark thinks of his son, based on what happened, based on the success of their mission and saving this uh, alien race from the shadow breed. Um, and, and John does perform adm- admirably, and and you know, saves his father and, and eventually or engages the shadow breed in such a way that his father's able to escape being trapped inside the shadow breeds with bill uh, shadow breed construct with billions of others who've been trapped in there um, ever since they've been assimilated by the shadow breed. And then together, the two of them are able to uh, defeat the, the shadow breed mostly due to John's uh, uh, hyper violet vision, as, as you mentioned. And then, you know, based on the success of that Clark sort of, jumps to the conclusion and maybe it's not the best characterization of Superman, but he does jump to, to the conclusion of, of, and, and you can see why he would, I mean, he's proud of his son. He's, he's proud after everything that John's been through um, as in his own words, you came back to us. Somehow you're the same compassionate, selfless, outgoing, happy kid you were when you, when you left, it almost feels like Kenny Johnson setting it up to go the other way and something terrible is going to happen. John's going to lash out. We've seen foreshadowing that, John would become in the future some kind of uh, despot or um, tyrannical ruler or what have you. So I think that the jury is still out. Um, certainly Clark at this point believes that John didn't suffer, um, but that remains to be seen. What I will say is that Bendis's Superman run and Bendis's decision to age John up and whatever editor agreed to it is the gift that just keeps giving and not in a good way, <laughs> not in a good way at all. I mean, I, I get it. It's Bendis. And you thought he was still had the the pull and was going to bring in the sales numbers that he did previously at Marvel. I don't know why you thought that any of us comic fans would have told you Bendis hadn't been any good in, in years. Some would argue ever, but he did have a lot of people that did enjoy what he did. He did have some people that, uh, enjoyed what he did on Superman too, but that decision to age John up was just so short-sighted. You know, we've talked about it ad nauseum, but as more time goes by, looking back on it with perspective, it baffles me even more that I mean, John was beloved as a character. Why would you make a change like that? You wouldn't. You wouldn't make a change to de-age or um, or or age Superman or Batman up you know, that to that huge amount to a, a different stage in their life and leave it that way indefinitely. You just wouldn't. The properties are, you know, worth too much. Maybe that's the fact that, you know, John Kent as Superboy, you know, he wasn't selling a ton of lunchboxes and, you know, pajamas and bed sheets or what have you. So whatever, we can do what we want with them. Yeah. But I just think it was so short-sighted. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I feel like, and I'll talk about this more when we get to talking about action comics, which Philip Kennedy Johnson also wrote, this feels, this whole story feels so editorially mandated to me. Um, and I know when I talked to Philip Kennedy Johnson, when he came on the show, he talked about the fact that he, he did need to address this. You know, he talked about the trauma with John and how it, it, it's something that's out there and, and hasn't been talked about. And so, yeah, like Rocky said, at least he's acknowledging it. At least they're, 
um, they're dealing with it, whether they're dealing with it in a good way or a bad way or, or whatever, they're at least acknowledging it. Um, and, it, and it's somewhat necessary, but here's the thing. I don't think this is, you know, when you, you go to Philip Kennedy Johnson and say, Hey, tell me a Superman story. I don't think he's like, Oh, well, I want to, I want to tell stories about John Kent and Superman's relationship through the lens of John being gone for seven years. That's probably way down on the list. If it's even on the list at all of stories, he actually wants to tell about Superman. So I feel bad for him actually, you know, we, I know I've been pretty harsh on him because I haven't felt like since he started on these two titles that his work has been particularly interesting. You know, like you said, this is kind of boring. This is a paint by the numbers Superman type story with this, um, this father, you know, being super proud of his son and, you know, bestowing all this uh, uh, kind of, I think, unearned uh, adulation upon him. It's one mission, you know, it's one thing he did good. And you're put, you're saying he's even better than I am, you know, and, and you've been doing it for years. So it, it feels very much dictated by editorial of this sort of paint by the numbers, Superman story, rescuing an alien species from the bad guys with all this uh, father son adulation pasted on top of it. Yeah. So in, in terms of, like impact or the story being remembered. No, it's, it's, there's nothing about this that's special or that stands out or makes me think that it's going to matter in the long run. Well, uh, I, I hope that Tom Taylor, uh, maybe Tom Taylor will deal with some of the uh, re residual, like will will some of the, will deal with some of the effects that must've occurred uh, on. Yeah. John, but I mean, in, in, in my mind, the only way, the, the only success that can come out of a, a John Kent series is if at the end of it, he's de-aged. It's got to be, if not, the whole, th what Bendis did with aging him up and being stuck in the volcano, whatever, it, it, if, if it can't be completely erased, you know, and just go back and, and say, with time travel or whatever, um, a crisis, whatever, and say, no, it didn't happen anymore. If you can't erase it, then at least go back and, and give us back a John at a young age so he can grow and mature and, and have memories of those same years that can, in his mind, sort of replace the trauma that he went through. In my mind, and I know that, you know, the whole thing about give the fans what they want or what they need, not what they want, whatever. But in my mind, that's the only way to fix it. There's no other way to fix it other than undoing it. It is such a bad idea. And I, I don't know why DC is so reluctant to undo it uh, and, you know, Philip Kenny Johnson came on the show and he talked about how, you know, you don't want to disrespect the previous writer and just undo everything they did. Like, I totally get it. And I agree with that for the most part. But when it's something so egregious that so clearly didn't work like this, in my mind, the only way to fix it is to fix it. You got to undo it because otherwise John Kent ends up as this character that just we don't care about. Like, I don't feel I don't care about John Kent anymore because I don't know who this John Kent is. And if you go and try to tell me, and maybe that's what Tom Taylor's going to do in his story, go oh, go read Superman, Son of Kal-El. That'll tell you who he is. But he's in my mind, he's still not who he should have been because yeah. of what Bendis did. It, it just it's wrong, and it, it needs to be fixed. And in the meantime, we're getting Superman stories that aren't very good, and that's the bottom line. So I'll be real curious. I mean, I don't even remember when is when is is this the last Superman issue, or is there a Superman thirty three? I don't know. I, I've not um, I've not cheated and looked ahead. I haven't really been looking at the solicits, to be honest, for for the 
I don't know. Yeah, because I, I don't know. I I don't remember what month. Um, Superman's supposed to uh, the Superman son of Kal El is supposed to come out. Well, I think so, isn't that that is next month, or is it even next week? Okay. Uh no, it's July. You're right. So yeah, so I think this is the last story. So we're not going to get any more Philip Kennedy Johnson. I just looked it up. We're not going to get any more Philip Kennedy Johnson Superman. There's the title's ending. There's no more. And that's probably why on the cover is this the end of Superman. So Superman 32, last issue of this Superman series. And then next month, we're going to get the the Kal-El or the uh, son of Kal-El, John Kent solo Superman title starting. So, hey, uh, I mean, Tom Taylor's a great writer. If anybody can fix what Bendis did, it would be him. But I still would argue the best way to fix it is to undo it. But we'll see. Uh, anyway, there's a backup story here. Uh, it's written by Sean Lewis. The art is by uh, Sammy Bosri. Uh, let me get to the credits page to tell you yeah. who else was involved. This is the Bibbo story with a bunch of the yeah. uh, supporting characters. Ulysses Ariola does the colors. Dave Sharp on letters. It's okay. Um, again, it sort of reminds me of the Triangle Era of Superman where we'd get a lot of stories, storylines invo- involving the... Uh, the supporting character. So here it's loose cannon and gangbuster and Bibbo and Jimmy Olsen. Uh, Steel makes a short appearance. And, but I think we've, we've talked about it before and I, I feel the same way about it that I did then. If you want to tell a story that has some of these supporting characters from the Superman world, then just incorporate it into the main story, make it feel like it did back in, in this triangle era instead of giving it its own because to go through and read a 10 page story about these guys. They're not the story and the characters aren't interesting enough to carry the narrative on their own. It's fun when it's intermixed with what's going on with Superman and Clark and Lois and whatnot. Um, Cause it's a little break and it, may, it can make for good transitions, but this whole tales of metropolis thing on its own, it's not really that interesting to me. Um, yeah. I thought the art was really solid though. And, and technically it, it's, you know, it's a well done comic in terms of pacing um, and I think if you sat down and read it all together, it would be mildly enjoyable, but I don't think any of these characters are really well-known or, or strong enough to carry this narrative on their own. I mean, Jimmy Olsen's probably the most well-known, but he's barely in the story. I mean, it's mostly a Bibbo and loose cannon story. And those just aren't characters I think that are strong enough to, to carry a book on their own. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, this is another one where I just, uh, I just shake my head. I just, I've got absolutely no interest in this Bibble story. Uh, Jimmy Olsen, uh, I hate to say it, but Jimmy Olsen isn't a, if any character cries out to be, uh, uh, frankly, fundamentally changed, uh, it's Jimmy Olsen. He needs to be, he, he needs to be a character that needs to be, uh, uh, redone, redone, revamped. And I think that Matt Fraction, uh, uh, unfortunately did uh, didn't do any of that when he had the 12 issue uh, Jimmy Olsen series and the tales of metropolis here this is this is an unrelated story i don't even i, I don't even i don't even know what Sean Lewis was trying to do I, I i got nothing out of this none of the characters are memorable um this is just a, a solid solid miss right across the board uh and it was it was almost as if they had this on the cutting room floor or something this was just you know i, I don't <laughs> like I say the art's fine, but what what a forgettable what a forgettable story. I I don't know, 
I, I don't I just don't see the point of this. This is uh, uh, let's just say the son of Superman can't can't come soon enough. We we really have to get out of this and, and move on. Well, the thing was, it was an interesting idea with this, you know, this magic, uh, this sort of evil sorceress or whatever, trying to infil- infiltrate Metropolis and and get to people that were close to Superman and try to, you know, influence them and, and eventually get get to Superman through them. But again, I think that's a story that storyline that needs to be incorporated in the in the main book, and you build up to something, you know, like you used to get back in the Triangle era. Um, but for it to stand on its own and then eventually not go anywhere, yeah, it just oh. guess what? It didn't go anywhere. Oh, <laughs> and like also, just... we're Superman. I mean, I, I don't know how you can go have a well, backup. Yeah. I mean, and never ever have Superman in it. I mean, yeah. they're 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 backup characters for a reason. I mean, they 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 can't hold their own story. They can't. So. Uh, you know, and and the and, and way too long. I mean, this was, I don't know, was this sixteen pages long? I mean, just the backup here is just way too long. Like, I mean, I I was just when I when I read this through the first time, I just when is this going to end? Like what? Like it was just going on and on and on and on and on, and it was just I shouldn't I shouldn't I shouldn't feel tired, and I haven't even got to the end of the story. But no, I just I'm just sorry, but the, these characters have to interest me, and none of them do. None of them do. Just straight up, none of them do. And I, you know, I, yeah. I, I mean, most of the most of the backups are only eight pages, so it makes you wonder if they told Sean Lewis he had a certain number of issues to tell the story and broke it down, and then oh wait, we're actually the last issue of Superman is thirty two, so we'll stick both uh, both well, issues because if if you go back, Rocky, to the yeah, scroll back the other way. Yeah, but this this is uh, this is uh, sixteen thirty six. This is fourteen pages. Yeah, and it makes me right. wonder when you get to that page that's uh, has a loose cannon. That page right there. Yeah. That page right there. That to me looks like another splash page from the the final part, right? Like this this would have been actually in Superman issue thirty three as the the title page, oh, the splash okay. page, and so they actually put maybe two of Crammed them together. Yeah, because they told Sean Lewis originally, hey, last issue of Superman is going to be 33, so yeah. you have whatever that is, six yeah. issues to tell your story. And then, yeah. oh, by the way, now it's only five. And he's oh, like, what? I already blocked it out. I already did the art. Yeah. already whatever. And so they, they crammed the last two parts together into one. Yeah. Pure speculation on my part. But it oh, feels no, like I, I think you're probably right. You're probably right. You know, they even yeah. they wanted this to end. all right well uh, let's move on because uh one of our favorite writers that we just mentioned uh does the next book we're going to talk about is checkmate number one the art and cover are by alex maleev the colors are by dave stewart the letters are by josh reed there's a variant cover by matt taylor and the writer is brian michael (laughs) bendis He's on Checkmate. Let's get more of that Leviathan story because we didn't get enough of it in the pages of uh, Action Comics and Leviathan Rising. So now we have our own Checkmate, one of six limited series. Uh, I, I, I can't wait to hear how much you love this, Rocky. Lay it on oh, me. Oh, man. Let, 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 me, let us count the ways. <laughs> how much I love this. Good grief. Uh, yeah, just, uh, let me get my bearings here. Okay. Um, yeah, well, you know, the, the, the habit Bendis has this, uh, he, he, he hasn't really done, he, he's done the same thing that he's, that he's essentially always done. It's, it's like he continued from where he left off, you know, once again, we're, 
Leviathan is like this powerful, great, just super like genius level uh, operative. And, you know, uh, he's he's destroyed all the intelligence agencies on, on in the DC universe, just to summarize. And he's he's stolen all the greatest intelligence operatives all over the globe. And he's formed Leviathan and he's bought his own country. Somehow he not only stole all the best intelligence operatives from the DEO, from Task Force S and uh, uh, and from uh, Shade and all these other organizations in the DC universe that we all know and love. Uh, and he's he's got all this money and he bought he bought the country of Mar- Markovia and now he leads Markovia. He's sort of like the DC universe's Doctor Doom, I guess you could think of him that way. And instead of live instead of ruling Latveria, he now rules Markovia and. And he's got he's got this huge intelligence op network, and and of course everybody wants to take him down, and in particular Talia Al Ghul. It this this issue starts off showing two years ago where Mark Shaw, who Mark Shaw, <laughs> the big mystery Leviathan. Mark Shaw, the, the former Manhunter is now Leviathan. He approaches Talia Gall, and he wants to. At two years ago is when he approached Talia Gall to basically this big master plan that he had that he helped form this formulate this plan to the help of Sam Lane Lois Lane's father and that the plan was to essentially utilize all the various uh, intelligence agencies destroy them and then take their best operatives and the the pompousness and the arrogance of this Mark Shaw is extraordinary and the arrogance of Bendis writing this is even higher is even more extraordinary and you know this 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 jump, this is jumpy from a structural point of view. This thing jumps from the from the past to the present to the. It's jumping all over the place, and nothing. Literally, we learn absolutely nothing that we didn't already know from the previous two series. We learn absolutely nothing. We, uh, Damien is infiltrating. Uh, you might remember that uh, Leviathan attacked Metropolis. With all that tech, when Leviathan attacked Superman, with all those great action comic issues drawn by John Romita Jr., <laughs> where all the people were flying around with no feet. Remember that? Uh, yeah, of course yeah. you don't. You want to forget it. But apparently Leviathan <laughs> crashed a large, a lot of ships, and some of this tech was captured. And now Damien is going to, he's checking out some of this tech, and he runs into his mom, Talia Gall. And of course, she's there too. Now, the interesting thing here is that I thought Talia Gall was on the Justice League satellite, the Totality satellite, trying to save the multiverse from incursions in the space-time continuum coming out of the pages of Death Metal. But apparently, no, she's also concerned with now also stopping Leviathan. I would think that since she's so powerful now, she wouldn't worry about Leviathan. But that's a little thing con- con- called continuity, and we don't need to worry about it, right? But anyways, Levi- you know, she's pissed off at Leviathan. Apparently, Steve Trevor, also in the present... Steve Trevor is in in an old abandoned church somewhere in Metropolis. He's meeting up with the rest of Checkmate. And we got the members of the Checkmate are Manhunter, uh, Kate Spencer Manhunter, Green Arrow, The Question, Dr. B- uh, Dr. Bones, uh, uh, Steve Trevor, Lois Lane, and this king. We don't know who this king is. We don't, we're not really sure who he is. It's kind of a mystery. And Lois Lane is a mystery. The dialogue here is atrocious. They're talking over each other's heads. They're asking the questions that we fans have, and nobody's answering the questions. Nobody answers a question directly. Nobody does. Lois Lane, they even ask the guy that they're supposedly working for, this king guy, what's your name? 
He won't say. He talks in circles. And this cute little banter back and forth, like, again, another, another 90s version of Friends. It's absolutely horrendous. We learn nothing. I have no interest in Leviathan whatsoever. To get even more astonishingly horrible about it, we, we, we get to a point where Natalia and Damien are captured by Leviathan and the dialogue goes absolutely nowhere. There's three pages of dialogue and there's nothing. And all Damien can say is, you're under arrest, Mark Shaw. Then Talia says, you're under arrest, Mark Shaw. Meanwhile, Mark Shaw is just giving a speech. And he's he's giving the same pompous speech he's given in the two previous series, talking about, I'm going to save the world. And, uh, you know, everything needs to be fixed. And I don't know what needs to be fixed. I think the world's fine. Not only that, the intelligence agencies aren't destroyed. Dr. Bones in the pages of uh, of uh, of DC Infinite Frontier, he's for, he's reformed the DEO, so that's been reinstigated, so Leviathan failed, so the intelligence agencies are reforming anyway, so I'm not really sure what the point was. This whole thing is just a disaster. Then we get this former employee from the Daily Planet confronting Lois Lane, and, and Mark Shaw, Leviathan, wants to have a meeting with Lois Lane. That's another thing that Mark Leviathan did. He had all these meetings with everybody. He met with Superman. He wants to meet with Green Arrow. He wanted to meet with all these. He wanted to meet with everybody, to talk with them, to reason with them, to get them to join Leviathan. We've already done this. We've been here before and it's boring and the sales sucked. Why are we going through this again? It's obvious this is editorially driven. This thing has been a project that, that's been delayed for months. I think this Bendis is under contract. I think they're dumping this out. On, on, on the idea that everything ma- everything matters because it's the DC continuity. I think this is just an info dump. This is, I, I'm not getting, I, I'm not buying the physical copies of this. I'm reviewing this because I review this with you. And, and if this is like a train wreck. I can't look away. I want to see this thing smash and explode. And that's what's going to happen. I'm sorry I'm done talking. I over-talked. <laughs> Uh, so I agree with you. I think uh, the, this is a, a a casualty of of delays at DC due to the pandemic. This should have come out months ago. That's why uh, you know it doesn't line up with what we see in, in Infinite Frontier with with Doctor Bone starting to put the DEO back together. Uh, I agree with you that Bendis just can't help himself with this narrative that's supposed to be clever that goes from two years ago to weeks ago to now to to you know, back to weeks ago, back to now. No, just, just tell us the goddamn story, Bendis, first of all, right? Second of all, maybe don't tell us a story because it's a bad story in the first place. Uh, oh. it, 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 you know, it's Bendis trying to go back to his crime noir roots or whatever, but let, let me, it'll be fun to do it in the DC universe because they have all these different uh, organizations and I can mix in superheroes, whatever. Guess what? It doesn't, it doesn't work um, because this kind of a story wouldn't work in a, a universe that has a Superman, that has a Batman. They would take out Mark Shaw in like 30 seconds, and that's it. End of story. That's number one. Number two is goes to what you were saying earlier, Rocky, about the hubris of, of Bendis to do this, right? Like, I know a lot of people are not going to – they could care less that Bendis basically takes uh, an old supporting character from that – my favorite era of Superman, that triangle era – Allie, who was basically Perry White's secretary, and turns her into a, a cult member for Leviathan. Oh, I've joined Leviathan, and and Mark Shaw's going to join. Like, no, why? Like, Allie was this sweet, 
character that you, you related to at one point she was homeless and they, they told this really very uh sort of relevant and and heartbreaking story in the 90s that dan jurgens did about her being homeless and she was like living in the supply closet at the daily planet building and it was one of those great dc christmas stories and here bendis ruins her as a character because he can it it, it really bothered me and i know like a, a lot of people are care less like throwaway character right like but it really is. It could be anybody. It could be any Daily Planet employee. So why do you have to go and ruin Allie? Like, just make it be anybody. Why did you have to go and ruin this character? That yeah. That's what bugged me the most about it. Um, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, the, we get no new information here. It's a, it's, I, I don't understand why this exists. It's not any good. Um, the whole Leviathan, the whole idea of the Leviathan and Mark Shaw taking over the Leviathan organization from Talia al Ghul and turning it into some uber super spy organization. It, it was flawed, and whoever approved it, <laughs> you made a huge mistake. It, this is god-awful. It's absolutely horrible. And I'm not even talking about technically. Like I'm leaving alone the art. I'm leaving alone the dialogue and the pacing. I'm just talking about purely from the conceptual idea that this would work and be a good story it's not it's horrible it is awful um and then you when you add in those those things that are wrong technically with the hokey dialogue that's very stilted um uh, alex malieve should never be drawing superhero characters his stuff should never be colored never i'm not a big fan of i'm not a big fan of his 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 rendering or his line work it's just not my taste but I do recognize that some people love it, but his best stuff is going to be like in a black and white book. That's crime noir that doesn't have colorful costumes and what have you. That's, that's the kind of work that he needs to be doing. You're doing his work. No favors here by, by coloring it, by, you know, putting him in the position where there's, a, you know, a Robin costume, which is a very colorful costume. Mark uh, Shaw wearing his, uh, old manhunter duds for some reason here, which is a bright red costume. It looks terrible. It looks awful. <laughs> it um, <does. laughs> so yeah, I I'm, I'm with Rocky. I'm won't be spending a dime on this. Um, I'll probably read the review copy so we can review it for the DC spotlight, but that's about it. But I would implore you if you are planning on picking this up, don't please don't, don't, don't even read this. Just listen to us. Tell you how terrible it is. We'll tell you what happens. You're going to know the whole thing. You're going to know the storyline. We'll fill you in. But the last thing I want is more of this. The last thing I would want is an ongoing checkmate. So we need to make sure the sales on this are terrible. And normally I would never do this, right? I'm not trying to take money out of people's pockets or, <laughs> you know, food out of people's mouths. But this is just so bad. It is, it is just so bad. This this should this kind of work should not be rewarded by people supporting it. It is it, this is the worst thing that DC has done. Like this is worse than future state. <laughs> this is as I shouldn't say we're like this is as bad as the worst titles in future state. It's just horrible. Yeah. And I'm, a... I'm sure Bendis doesn't mean for it to be, but I think he's trying to tell a story. First of all, like I said, in conception, this type of story doesn't fit in the DC universe. doesn't fit the tone with all the superheroes and what have you. That's number one. And number two, he doesn't have the space to actually tell the story that he wants to tell. That's, and that's what why it feels so choppy. Yeah. 
And I, I don't think he know he doesn't know the characters well enough to tell us to tell the story yeah, anyway. Exactly. He just exactly. doesn't. And and he he just and it takes him forever to get to a point, to to his point. And uh, and in fact, I'm going to be making. You want to talk about getting forever to? Uh, I accurately predicted what Je- Bendis was going to do, which is a very easy thing to do. I, I I possess no special talent. I only possess common sense and observational skills, which which is surprising coming from me because I often forget things, which fortunately are around to uh, remind me. But uh, I actually accurately predicted the outcome of the Justice League, which we're going to be getting to later, which was uh, a very easy thing to do. Also penned by Bendis, which absolutely went nowhere and was also one of the worst of the week, in my opinion. But... Uh, not as bad as this. This is by far the worst of the week. And out of 16 titles to come in dead last, that's 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 quite an accomplishment. Congratulations, Brian Bendis. Yeah, it's it's terrible. And, and to your point about him not knowing the characters, if he did know the characters, he wouldn't have ruined Allie like that. Yeah. She's beloved. Uh, you know, people that are big fans of the Triangle Era love Allie. And for, her to, for Bendis to just ruin her like that, it really bugged me. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, Detective Comics number 1038. Written by Mariko Tamaki, we get Victor Bogdanovic pencils here with uh, Victor Bogdanovic and Daniel Enriquez inks. Jordi Belair does colors. Adida Bidikar on letters. Um, this still, this is still a really good title. Um, I will say, like normally, I'm a huge fan of Bogdanovic, um, and and that's still the case. I still love his art. It definitely, he definitely, and his art is sort of similar to to Dan Mora. Maybe he exaggerates a little more. Like there's especially one panel where you see uh, Roland Worth and Batman facing off against each other. And it, it Worth just towers over Batman. <laughs> he towers over him. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> and so there are a little, there are a few problems that I have with that. The, the problems of scale. Um, and there's also another scene later on. And this, this was where I really was like, Vic, come on. I know you can do better. Um, Roland holds a gun to, the head of somebody in the back of a car and the gun is so huge. The barrel of the gun is as big as Hugh Vile's head. Like I, I think it's I'm meant to be a, a bazooka, isn't it? Or is it a gun? No, it, it's like he pulls a gun out. It's, it's, he, it's a handgun. He's holding it with one hand. It's not the bazooka he was carrying early on in the, in the issues. It's a couple more pages after that when Hugh Vile gets in the car. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Right. Yep. One more. Yep. Scroll down, scroll down just a little bit more and you'll see a close up of it. Look at that gun. It is as big as Hugh Viles. I was just like, what gun is that? Or the barrel? Like, where do you even buy ammunition for that gun? So, I mean, again, I'm a big fan of Vic. I have some of his original art hanging on my wall, but that did, that did take me out of the story. When I saw that, I was like, Whoa, that gun is way too big. Uh, that being said, uh, the story continues to be a lot of fun. Um, Bruce Wayne is sort of off the table right now, which I, I'm i a little disappointed because I think both of us had, had commented on how much we were enjoying the fact that Detective Comics had a Bruce Wayne narrative. And now that Bruce Wayne is, is wanted uh, because he escaped from jail, 100% due to the fact that Roland Worth blew up the police station – uh, but be that as it may, and whether it's a derivative or not, Bruce Wayne Fugitive obviously comes to mind. Uh, Bruce Wayne's off the table now, and it's just Batman. Um, my, my opinion on, on Worth hasn't changed at all. He's a big bully. He's not a very smart person. Um, and, and, that's, that is, and I think Rocky made this point last time. He's overcome with grief, and you know he must have more intelligence than this normally to have become as successful as he has. But 
he's just he's so two dimensional and tropey here, and and maybe that's the point, and maybe that's why he's so easily manipulated by Hugh Vile, who, uh, in my mind, has got to be working for the, um, Simon Saint and the Magistrate, and this is just more, hey, let's cause chaos and disorder in Gotham. Uh, Vile says as much um, that he he wants to cause violence and chaos, uh, so that. And in my mind, if I hear that, I'm going to think, okay, yeah, because you want Mayor Nakano to sign up for the magistrate, right? So um, it all ties into to Future State. We all know how I feel about that. I'm not going to harp on that again. But but overall, it's still enjoyable. Um, it's still good, although this is probably my, my least favorite issue of Detective that we've had so far. But again, only because I, I didn't get any Bruce Wayne, uh, you know, and I, I was had really been enjoying that. So it's been it's been a little paint by the numbers. It's starting to get a little bit predictable, mm-hmm. but uh, narratively, technically, it's still a very good comic. The art is is really good, despite you know the few moments of scale that kind of pulled me out of the story. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm still enjoying it. Uh, I think other than Batman Urban Legends, which doesn't actually have that much Batman in it, but it has an amazing Red Hood and an amazing Grifter story. Other than that, Detective Comics is actually my favorite Batman. Uh, book that's coming out right now. So, yeah. Uh, anything to add to that, Rocky? Uh, uh, not much. I, I, I think uh, I agree. This is this is very well done. Uh, I, I like the I like the work with. I, I actually like the one dimensionality of uh, Roland uh, Worth. Uh, he is overcome with grief, and and as Batman even said, you know, with, with he knows somebody else is in play. Roland Worth is the type of guy that you, you know you, you can see him coming. He he'll, he can see him coming a mile away, usually with a bazooka yeah. in his hands. Uh, I thought it was there's some obvious corruption going on here. I, I think from a storyteller storytelling point of view, I think Marika Tamaki is. I think some of this seems to be a little bit uh, a little bit forced in that. Everyone knows that Gotham City is corrupt in the higher levels, but it seems astonishing that you know, um, you know, Roland Worth is stopped by Lady Clayface uh, assumes the assumes the image of of his daughter uh, Sarah Worth, who died uh, because uh, Lady Clayface uh, survived uh, a day at Arkham Asylum, and then ultimately she saw. I think she she saw Sarah be murdered, and so she assumed the image of Sarah, and that's sort of what. Roland, when Roland confronts Batman in the cave and is getting the better on Batman, when Lady Clayface shows up in the image of his daughter, he that sort of calms Roland down and he gets arrested. But then, literally, he's he's released within 24 hours. I mean, even Oracle said that Roland were set a record for being released. <laughs> Almost as soon as he was arrested, he was released. So obviously, Mer Nakano is. Uh, if I don't know, Marinacano, just one one moment he, he he comes across as maybe a little bit anti-heroic, then then he comes across as corrupt, and then he comes across as doing good, and he's uh, I'm not I'm I'm trying to get a handle on Marinacano. Nakano, he's I'm I'm not sure I, I, is he if he's completely corrupted or not, or to what extent the magistrate is has is going to ultimately ex- exercise complete control over him. I'm assuming that's the case because we we did read Future State, but clearly this is going toward Future State. Uh, and just an, a further reminder to readers uh, that again, this is further evidence. In fact, all the issues that uh, all the issues that came out of Future State, to the extent that we're going to be reviewing them this week, there's further evidence that everything is moving toward Future State. Everything is moving toward Future State. I'm beginning to think that the future in Future State is in fact going to happen because 
Uh, it, this really does seem like they were out of ideas after Dan Didio got fired and they really are sticking with Future State and I don't think they changed anything. We are literally headed toward uh, what Future State is and all the clues are there. I'm not, and uh, Jace, you and I have been very blunt about it that we've been generally enjoying DC, uh, but it is it is almost unfortunate that we saw f- that we read Future State in a sense that because a lot of these stories are, are good. If this would be an even more exciting read, and we said this before for Detective Comics, if we didn't know the outcome of Future State, because this is actually this is overall it's a pretty good read. A little bit disappointed in this one, uh, but the art's really good, and it's I'm Marika Tamaki. This is clearly her best work at DC. Is is her writing Batman? So overall, pretty good, and I did enjoy the art, notwithstanding those the size of that gun. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not still, I'm still not 100 convinced that we're going to get to future state. I feel like they're they they're trying to make us believe that, but we may veer off at the last moment. At least I hope that's that's the case. Uh, as far as Nakano goes, I, I'm right there with you. I'm not sure is he is he in on it because he just he has that irrational hatred of vigilantes because of losing his partner and losing his eye, or is he just completely incompetent and over his head? I could see it going either way. Uh, there is also a backup in this issue called March of the Penguin. It's by Megan Fitzsimmons, who uh, is a writer who I'm feeling like I need to start paying more attention to. I'm really enjoying the things that she's done recently. Uh, the art is by Carl Mostert, colors by Jordi Belair, letters by Rob Lee. And as the title indicates, March of the Penguin, this is a, a penguin story. And uh, it's great. It's it's basically the penguin has somewhat become a, a joke, right? Like at, at one point, <laughs> they, they're making fun of him saying, you know, you're just this, this has been um, who runs a dive bar, basically. Um, like used to be public enemy number one and now you're an afterthought an over glamorized dive bar owner um and and the penguin is coming to realize that and maybe he's going to throw his uh support and weight behind roland worth to try to kind of rise back up so i don't remember at what point you know the whole um iceberg club started and penguin tried to you know have that um that sort of front of being legitimate uh but it has sort of uh taken him it's taken some of the shine off of him as a supervillain right um and so uh, i i totally agree that this is necessary let's bring back that idea of the penguin as this sort of sadistic threat uh as opposed to just this you know sort of shady trying to work both sides of the table uh dive bar owner (laughs) to borrow language from the story so yeah i thought this was i thought this was was pretty good yeah, I, I agree with you. And just uh, just a quick note that one of the uh, I don't think it's just Penguin, but, you know, with with James Tynion in Batman, you know, putting so much focus on new characters, he's introducing a slew of new characters that are frankly very interesting. And I personally am loving it. I kind of like the break. I'm glad we're getting a break for the most part from the Riddler, the Penguin, the, the Joker more, you know. I realize the Joker has a series, but what I'm saying is that I personally like that James Tynion gave us a lot of new characters in the Batman universe. I enjoyed that, and I like the focus on the newer characters. And uh, but it while while we're doing that, it's I like the fact that this this short story sort of alludes to the fact that you know, hey, the Penguin is you know you're not going to forget about me. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a badass, and I'm not going to be ignored. And so yeah, I mean I I can see it because. 
obviously, as as we get uh, more rogues gallery and, and more villains in Gotham City, there's more competition to to r- rise to the top. And I'm sure Penguin is going to have his name in the hat to be at least in the top two, uh, competing with the Joker. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's the argument I was Batman. You know, the ar- the argument has often been made that Batman has the best rogues villains of anybody. You know, maybe with the exception of Spider Man, you could make an argument for. Um, but that's what makes me so mad that constantly all we get is the Joker. Like <laughs> there's so many to choose from and all we ever get is the Joker. It's annoying. Um, anyway, the Carl Mostert art, I, I do want to uh, again, mention how incredible uh, the art is in that backup. He does a really great job. So, uh, all right, move on on to Teen Titans Academy part four, the Brat pack in X uh, marks the spot written by Tim Sheridan, Steve Liebers, the artist on this, Dave Stewart colors, Rob Lee letters, uh, Steve Lieber, uh, his line work, I enjoy his art a lot more than I do like an Alex Maleev. But I do think that his art isn't necessarily suited for a superhero book, uh, or at least not not one as colorful and as uh, with so many characters as as this has been. We've had Rafa Sandoval doing the art, and his, he has a much more dynamic style, um, and I think his, his is better suited. All that being said, the, if you're going to have Steve Lieber come in and do an issue of uh, Teen Titans Academy. This is the issue to have him come in, right? When it's the Brat Pack, uh, who are these uh, characters? From, a lot of people remember them from the the Gotham Academy um, series, where they're they're basically they they kind of fancy themselves as junior detectives. Uh, you know, they want to be the world's greatest detectives, like Batman is, and they're basically this whole issue is them they're uh, having an investigation trying to figure out who who Red X is. So it's pretty fun. Uh, seeing them kind of go through and eliminate people, they they jump to a lot of conclusions, and you know clearly clearly they're young and inexperienced, but it is it is pretty fun. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm gonna say the same thing I said about this title in terms of uh, when it had the crossover with uh, with Suicide Squad. The book is called Teen Titans Academy, so I'm ready to have that experience of reading a book where. I'm getting stories and character interactions between the actual students of the school. And it feels like a a school book, like strange Academy or deadly class or morning glories or any, or even Gotham Academy itself, right. Where it's focused on the students. Um, And and this does, but only three of them. And it's more focused on who red X is. And we talked to Rocky and I talked about it before. This it, the name of this book is Teen Titans Academy. It's not Red X, so I hope, and I'm starting to worry because I said before I hope this isn't like 18 issues of Red X, trying to figure out who Red X is and just beating us over the head with Red X, Red X, Red X. I I, I don't care. Like I'm more interested now because of what we saw in the latest issue of Suicide Squad that I'm curious enough now to know who Red X is, but. I'm reading this book to find out about the Teen Titans Academy and the characters that are going to the Academy to learn how to use their powers and the next, this next generation of heroes. I'm not reading about it to learn about Red X. So this was a fun issue, but okay, either tell us who Red X is or give it a rest and let's get on with learning about these kids that are going to the Academy. So ultimately I thought it was okay um, I guess if you're a huge Red X person, you probably like it a lot. Um, but I just thought it was okay. Uh, what were your thoughts, Rocky? 
well, my thoughts are, are that uh, the, the one consolation here is that we are, this is absolutely more of, this involves a search for Red X. This involves the, the, the Bat Pack, which consists of Brat Girl, Chupacabra, and Megabat. They're looking, they're, they suspect that Red X is a member of the school, and they're infiltrating and interrogating various members of Titans Academy. And it's through that interrogation and their investigation that we get to know the characters. So e- even though I'm, I like you, I'm, I'm tired of Red X, the Red X mystery already, and I wish it would go away. It's not going to go away. We know it's not going to go away. <laughs> we, we, in fact, we, we got we got a yearbook coming out next week, Teen Titans Academy yearbook that'll come out, and that's fall filled with Red X. We got that in Suicide Squad. Red X is here, I think, for for a while. But at least I think we are. This issue, I think, had a, a more character development with some of these students. I felt I got to know these students more than I have in previous issues. Uh, through their narration, through the exposition, I thought it was good. Uh, through their investigations, they investigate. So we got the Brat Girl, Chupacabra, and Megabat. They investigate uh, Billy Batson, Tubi, Stitch, Matt Price, uh, Brick Paterusso, and they explain all these characters. Uh, Miguel Montez of Dial H for Hero. We get to we get we get snapshots of all these characters. And there's a great scene in here that I really like where they're, they're spying on Billy Batson and they see Billy Batson screaming on top of the building and they're, they're wondering what he's screaming. And of course, we're thinking he's yelling Shazam and he is. And what's interesting is that he, he yells Shazam. He gets hit with lightning, but he doesn't change into Captain Marvel. That's what's fascinating about that. Now we know that ultimately we know what happens to Shazam and Billy Batson at the end of Future State and uh, we know he ultimately ends up being, uh, Shazam ends up having to guard the, the rock of eternity, the door to the rock of eternity to prevent the, I think the unkindness from escaping. And, and in any event, we also know that at some point the bat pack, we know, we know from future state that the bat pack, that these three brat girl, Chupa Cabra and Megabat, they're kind of bullies. And we know ultimately that they're going to bully Miguel, uh, who is of Dolly H for Harold, they're going to steal his H style and they're going to try to resurrect Roy Harper from the dead, thinking that he's dead, but he's not dead. And now, <laughs> I, I, well, I don't want to, I don't I could, we haven't reviewed Infinite uh, DC Infinite Frontier yet, but it's, we, well, Roy Harper, you know, so, spoiler alert, we're going to review it uh, coming up here, but my, po- all this is tied up. So, so we know that what the Titans, what these Titans, what these kids are going to do in their, in their vain attempt to try to find out who Red X is and in their bullying, uh, we know that they're going to end up doing a lot more harm than good. And this is all tying together, but to new readers like you and I, I actually think this is kind of interesting at this point, but I've been here from the beginning. I think to new readers, this is a lot to sort of, to sort of explain to new readers, but it, the story is there. I just wish it was more cohesive and, 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 um, just better put together. It's, it's, and I have to say again, I, I sound like a broken record, but starting off with future state was a mistake in so many ways because we, we got snapshots of the future that we didn't need. And I think take away from a lot of the surprises where this could be headed to. 
I, I don't know. I'd, I would have loved to have been the fly on the wall to hear the person who justified future state. But, and again, we liked a lot of future state, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's a gift that keeps on giving. I think it's a gift that maybe has, uh, has diminishing returns the, the more we, we, we read these ongoing narratives. But I like the art here. I thought it was, I thought that this was the best character development so far. And uh, fingers crossed that it'll continue to get better. Yeah, that's another part of the reason that I think that we won't get to future state because it's, it's got to be more interesting to think we're going to go there and then go in a different direction. Um, you know, because of all this. So, I mean, obviously Billy's having trouble because, you know, the Shazam persona, it's got, has to do with everything that we saw in future state and whatnot. And so, yeah, it's gotta, it's gotta veer off at some point, but like I said, they're probably going to wait to the last minute. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Infinite Frontier number one of six is out this week. Uh, for some reason, and again, it's so annoying when they do this. There's no credits in the preview copy, and I'm I'm assuming, I'm guessing, the credits are inside the front cover, and we don't have that page. Uh, but it's written by Joshua Williamson. The art is by Zermanico. Colors are by uh, Romulo Fajardo Jr. I don't know who the letterist is. I apologize um, for not being able to give them proper credit. But as far as the the book itself, Rocky, what did you think? Uh, I thought this was, uh, this was disappointing to me. This was disappointing. Uh, I'll straight up, I'll, I'll say it. I, I, I was really hoping for a lot more substance. I, I think that, I, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> this, uh, we start off, uh, with a bang, I guess we got, we, we got a sh- ship that's rocketed to earth. And we end up with a a rocket ship crash landing on in a farm field, and in this in this wreckage is Flashpoint Batman. Now, when I see Flashpoint Batman, normally I would think cool. I would think a Flashpoint. Unfortunately, we had something called Tom King's Batman run. And when I think of Flashpoint Batman, I think of I, I, I think of something very, very, very different. And, uh, and I think of a corrupted piece of human garbage because that's what Flashpoint uh, Batman t- ended up being. He wasn't the heroic person of Flashpoint. But maybe he is now if we can forget uh, Tom King's. Batman run and DC probably wants us to forget that because that's why they fired Tom King. Uh, but off Batman, but in any event, uh, so yeah, so now we got Flashpoint Batman crash landing on Earth twenty three, which is the same Earth where President or Calvin Ellis, President Superman, is, and President Superman is is actually a the leader of of Justice Incarnate, which we know from Multiversity, they look after and protect the sanctity of the multiverse. And that's very, very important. Now, what's interesting is that we know from multi- Grant Morrison's multiversity that Justice Incarnate, they protect the sanctity of the multiverse. And meanwhile, we get, um, we have the totality coming out of death metal, the Justice League totality protecting, I think, the same thing. So we got different Justice League trying to protect the sanctity of time. We're, Joshua Williamson is is also trying to set up the fact that everybody on every earth is aware that there's a multiverse now. And apparently this is something that that Dr. Bones and his he's trying to recruit Chase into the DEO. 
Uh, and this is where my criticism of Checkmate comes in. I mean, Leviathan, Leviathan was unsuccessful. The DEO was back. Dr. Bones, the, you know, uh, Mr. Bones here, he's, uh, he's supposed to be a member of Checkmate, but, uh, but he's also forming the DEO again. So I'm not really sure why we need Checkmate if we, if we have the DEO, or I guess we're going to have more than one intelligence agency. In any event, he's recruiting Agent Chase Chase for, for back into his fold, and we don't know why. He shows her a picture of something. We know from the digital series of Infinite Frontier that very we're getting snapshots of various heroes and origins in the universe. We're also getting we also got a snapshot here of Alan Scott talking to his son Obsidian, and they approach, they go to the Justice Society. They go to the Justice Society headquarters in Gotham City, uh, and it, it explodes. Somebody destroys it, and they they they're fearful that his daughter Jade uh, might be uh, killed. And so now, where where's all this leading? Well, at the end of the day, <clears throat> the Justice Incarnate on Earth twenty three they take Flashpoint Batman, and they want to question him. And and there's a great conversation where Flashpoint Batman asks to speak to the Flash. And the, uh, you know, Su- President Superman says, which Flash? And he says, Barry Allen. And he says, which one? It's like, you you got to be more specific. This is the multiverse that we, we, we protect. And so something's going on here. Meanwhile, probably the biggest reveal is that we get, we, we see Barry Allen of Earth Zero. And we know Barry Allen is supposed, is now the new Flash of Justice Incarnate. So Wally West is at least supposed to be the 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 Flash of Earth Zero's Justice League, and we know that uh, uh, Barry Allen is now the Flash of Justice Incarnate. He's been going around and he's been checking out all the various Earths in the multiverse to make you know, just to check them out, following the events of Death Metal, just to scope things out. And he discovers Earth Omega. And, and the way that he gets to Earth Omega is that it's very difficult to get to Earth Omega because he's got to channel all the energies of more than one Earth. And it's very interesting that in Earth Omega, there's, there's no frequency. So each Earth has its own frequency and its own vibration, except for Earth Omega. It doesn't. And it's, it's a strange place. And what he finds on Earth Omega is the remains of the quintessence. We know that Darkseid in Infinite Frontier Zero he murdered all the members of the quintessence, which considered a which was consisted of a of a guardian of a phantom stranger, and uh, of oh my god Hera I think and uh, in any event a, a whole slew of them, and fortunately Wonder Woman refused to join the quintessence, so she was uh, she wasn't there when uh, when the massacre occurred. Flash discovers this. And Flash also runs into another individual who, those of us who love a, a good crisis, know that Psycho Pirate is always part of a crisis. Psycho Pirate was there, part of the original crisis on Infinite Earths when Flash died. And when Flash was resurrected in, in Final Crisis, Psycho Pirate was also present. And here we have Psycho Pirate once again coming forward and uh, he's working for somebody. We don't know who Psycho Pirate is working for. But they want to they want to recruit the Flash to help help them. My favorite part comes at the end, and this is the part I was alluding to when we were reviewing Teen Titans Academy. We we see 
Roy, we see Roy Harper having just having a drink in a dr- diner where people are talking about how cool it is that they can, you know, that there's a multiverse and they talk about having alternate selves and, and, you know, some people thinks it's think that the multiverse is fake news. It's not real. And, and nobody understands what Superman says when he talks about the multiverse, it's average citizens in the diner talking about the multiverse and, and Roy Harper happens to be present. And there's an altercation when the diner is attacked by these people that want to extract Roy Harper and they're about to, they're about to, uh, you know, it looks like they're going to kill Roy Harper. And wow, all of a sudden there's a fist that slams into this, uh, these attackers and it's, and the big reveal here, and it is a whopper is that Roy Harper, uh, seems to be surprised that he's wielding a black lantern ring. This is a huge revelation if Bla- if Roy Harper is wielding a black lantern ring, um, you got to remember that you're only, as Batman discovered, as we all know from Death Metal and from Blackest Night, you can only wield a black lantern ring if you are dead. So Roy Harper would appear to both be dead and alive. He's dead. He must be dead if he can wield a black lantern ring, unless there are other rules at play at this op- in this new omniverse. This is really interesting. How did he become a Black Lantern? He seems to be surprised by it. Uh, it is a mystery. It's going to continue in three weeks. There's a lot here that, uh, you know, a lot of interesting things are, are building up here. A lot of moving pieces. My one criticism is there are so many moving pieces that coming out of death metal, coming out of the mess of death metal, I don't know if the DC Universe is was maybe ready for another big event that is this messy with so many moving parts, but Hey, whatever. I'll enjoy it. I'm definitely picking this up. I'm really curious to see what happens to Roy Harper and this black lantern ring is, is, you know, so much to we to go through here. But anyways, Jace, man, I, uh, what do you think? Were you, uh, was this too, too, too much adventure for you or what? No, I mean, <laughs> here's the thing. Like, the way it's structured, it's all about this last page. Like you said, mm-hmm. the Black Lantern, Roy Harper, and it brings up the whole idea of the omniverse and multiverse and what have you. So if, if he's still dead in one reality, can he be a Black Lantern there? If he's, you know, and, and it's it's not just that he shows up at the end with this Black Lantern ring, which I'm not sure. Like, at first I thought he was a White Lantern, Um because of the what the energy looks like. I don't know why. I mean, the energy should be more black. And I know there's a little bit of black crackling around him, but the ring actually is gl- glowing white. It should be glowing black in my mind. Um, but the fact that there are these, these other, I, I don't know, for lack of a better term, to, to mix uh, uh, franchises here, <laughs> like Force Actually, Ghost. You're, you're right. I stand corrected. I think that is – I got the white lantern ring here. I think that is a white lantern. No, it's bl- it's a black lantern. It, it's black. Is it? I'm, I'm – pretty sure oh, it okay. is yeah, yeah, because the right. white because the the yeah the white lantern ring it yeah. kind of radiates out like a sun you're right the it, black, there's a there's the black, a different line on the white lantern yeah. ring i got them both yeah here. the you're right. black yeah the black goes straight up and down yeah um like, like we see here uh on the chest as opposed to the white one where it kind of radiates out like a sun um but yeah, I'm 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 in, I'm intrigued by this, and I'm intrigued by these different iterations of of Arsenal or, or Roy Harper that are behind him, these like Force Ghost type um, situations. But you know, it's six issues. 
And I, I feel like we didn't get a sixth of the story here. I did. I, I love the psycho pirate showing up and, and the fact that we are going bigger. I mean, it's not only the psycho pirate, but he has like this Omega on his chest, which, you know, a lot of us have uh, come to associate that symbol in the DC universe with dark side. we know dark side is the one that killed the quintessence. We saw that in infinite frontier zero. And if you've ever seen the, the covers to uh, final crisis where, you know, dark side's putting his fist together and there's um, there's Omega symbols on his fist. Obviously his beams are called Omega beams. So clearly he's going to be the big bad here. And I do like that idea. I think dark side gets a, he's not, he is by far the, should be the, the Galacticus or the Thanos of the DC universe. And I don't think he gets enough credit. People don't think of him as a big enough threat. And so anything that Joshua Williamson can do to level him up, I, I agree with. So, so the, the problem with the story is it just, it, it feels so choppy, right? Like we get Green, uh, Alan Scott, Green Lantern and Obsidian. And then we jump to Paris with Cameron Chase, former head of DEO with uh, current head of DEO, Dr. Bones. He's trying to put it together and he's sort of blackmailing her back in. Uh, we get Justice Incarnate showing up. We get Barry Allen Flash on Earth Omega. And then we get the diner scene. But no, we have no context for why, how any of this ties together, how it ties together, why it ties together. So I'm just not sure. Um, and these kind of events are, are tough to do. And, and the other thing is, I think because events have become so much more common, this is especially true across the street at Marvel, that they're, they, do, they do that. It's like one event after the other, after the other, as opposed to just one event a year, big summer event, usually with a bunch of crossovers. It's just one event leads into another. So they've lost their kind of cachet and importance. And so in that way, they don't spend as much resources on them, um, which is fine to not have to go out and read, you know, 10, 12 issues and buy a bunch of crossovers. But the, the problem is when you shrink it down to only six issues, then is that enough room to really tell something if, if this is going to be uh, the crisis that sort of leads to, we've heard so many different things, right? I've heard from people that saying that DC does have another crisis coming. Um, that's probably going to be what fixes future state. Maybe it, hopefully it can be what fixes John Kent, but we know it's, it's coming. We know there's another big event coming and maybe it'll throw out some of the stuff in death metal and, and uh, dark Knights metal that just didn't work or, or what have you. We know, we know there's another one coming eventually. Um, so maybe this is just set up for that. I don't know. Um, but like I said, the, the problem is that w so many of these events and it's one after the other and constantly shifting stuff and omniverse and everything counts. Like we don't know what to think anymore. And it makes stories like this, which could be pretty interesting. And we feel like, okay, maybe we should be paying attention to it. It removes some of the importance and it removes some of the impact of them because why should I care about this? They're just going to change it next week you know, or, or whatever, three weeks from now, whenever it's over, when the next event comes along. Um, and so I, I, that's disappointing to me. And it, it has nothing to do with this creative team and, and what have you. I won't even necessarily say it has, I won't put that, I won't put all the blame, let's put it that way. I won't put all the blame on DC editorial either. It's just the nature of the industry right now. Um, yeah. And it's unfortunate. And it, it, it has to do with the shelves being crowded. It has to do with variant covers it has to do with speculators it has it, it's just it's an overall problem in the industry um and i kind of sound like an old man you know i'm clint eastwood get off my lawn i'm hearkening back to a, a a simpler time but i i just feel like in a simpler time an event like this would have had more impact it would have had you know more marketing it would be more important um 
But whether or not it's going to be a good story or not, I I don't know. I feel like we got glimpses of a good story and an interesting story here. Uh, I think technically it's well put together. Some of the better writing and dialogue I've seen Joshua Williamson do. Um, it's got interesting characters. I mean, having Roy Harper show up as a Black Lantern, <laughs> that was the last thing I expected in this book. Uh, I think Alan Scott, Green Lantern, or Sentinel, as he's been called sometimes, is, is an interesting character. Uh, Extant even showed up there for a brief moment. Um, I'm always a fan of seeing President Superman. So, yeah, there's. I loved seeing Psycho Pirate, this new version of leveled up version of Psycho Pirate. So there's a lot of good parts here. Did it come together to create a cohesive issue? No. Does that mean that we won't get a cohesive story eventually? No, not necessarily. Um, so it's kind of a wait and see for me. Uh, I'm going to be curious to hear what a lot of other people's reactions are to uh, to Infinite Frontier after it comes out this week. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll see. And the art by Zermanico was was solid. Uh, I enjoyed it. it. It felt dynamic when it needed to. And a lot of characters here. <laughs> I mean, that, that guy is really... Uh, He's earning his paycheck with this issue. I thought he did a great job. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm right. curious. I'm curious. Psycho Pirate, Psycho Pirate has the Omega symbol on his chest, and I want, but that that symbol has been used sometimes to protect from the anti-life equation. But sometimes it might mean that you're infused with the anti-life equation. But because he's black and white, I'm, I'm wondering if he's against Darkseid or on the, the mysterious voice. Is it Darkseid or is it somebody else? So it's. it's I, I read it as. Yeah, I read it as Dark Side. I read it as him working for Dark Side, but I guess yeah. we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> Anyways, uh, fun stuff. Yep. Moving on, Action Comics number 1032, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Daniel Sampier, colors by Adriana Lucas, letters by Dave Sharp. First of all, the art, David uh, Daniel Sampier, I think I said David's Daniel Sampier, absolutely incredible art. This guy is a superstar in the making. I I said that from the first time I saw his art, and I can't believe more people aren't talking about it. Just absolutely spectacular. Um, the line work, the uh, the character acting, transitions from panel to panel, just fantastic. Adriana Lucas, you know, my colorist of the year, uh, two years ago, is the perfect person to color his art. Uh, he, he, he brings out the best of, of Daniel Sampier's art. So, like, this is the most beautiful comic of the, the week for me. Just absolutely fantastic. Dave Sharp's letters, uh, again, it's it's not super dialogue heavy, but there's Kryptonian here. <laughs> there's uh, conversations with uh, with Batman. There's a, there's a lot. Um, I wouldn't say it's it, clearly not the most dialogue heavy book, but there's a lot. And Sharp does a great job of of pacing it out correctly with his placement of, uh, of the word balloons. And I think that doesn't get mentioned often enough. So I, I wanted to give him credit. Uh, as far as the story itself, I said I would mention this before uh, when I was talking about Superman. So this has no John Kent BS. There's no – I don't feel like there's anything being editorially dictated. This to me feels like Philip Kelly, Kennedy Johnson telling the Superman story that he wants to tell. And while I'm not 100% on board with taking Superman off of Earth and putting him out on War World again, you know uh, – future state like that's what we saw in future state so it's it's uh shades of future state uh and i've talked before about how that's been done before with the superman exile storyline by roger stern which was fantastic why are we doing it again but at least this feels like philip kennedy johnson is getting to tell the story that he wants to tell and you know what it's pretty damn good i'm really enjoying it um 
<laughs> there's a scene with the uh, artifact that we saw last issue that the Atlanteans claimed. Um, and Superman said, hey, I'll take it back to my Fortress of Solitude and examine it. No, 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 it's ours. Well, and I mentioned at the time, that might not be the best call. And that's exactly kind of the impetus of the action in the issue. It mutates creatures from under the sea. And it, it's actually a message to Superman. It's clearly a trap. Superman even recognizes that, um, that he's being drawn to Warworld to try to rescue this, uh, this remnant, these Kryptonians who maybe were uh, some Kryptonians who left thousands of years before the destruction of Krypton. But if there's Kryptonians out there and there's a chance to save them, Superman is going to, he's going to take every opportunity to save them, even if he is walking into a trap. Um, but ultimately it ends up with Steve Trevor as a, um, and again, this goes back to what Rocky was talking about with uh, the Checkmate series, not lining up timeline wise, like, isn't Steve Trevor? Shouldn't he be out there, like going after uh, Mark Shaw? There's no, there's, there's no Argus for him to be a part of anymore, right? It all got dismantled. Oh, but wait, he's with Argus. He's there representing the U.S. government. He's yeah. telling it the Atlanteans, "Hey, you got to give us that artifact." Aquaman's like, "Well, I don't speak for Atlantis anymore, but you're not getting it. That'll be an act of war." And Superman's just kind of caught in the middle there. Ultimately, I think Superman should just fly down. And he even says, "I don't think anybody should have this artifact. It's too dangerous. He just needs to fly down to Atlantis, take it." And chuck it. Just take it with take it with him to space, or throw it in the sun, or whatever. Um, because it's clear that it's too dangerous for anybody to to have a hold of. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic and interesting tension that's going on there. Um, so overall, yeah, I'm really enjoying this. A lot of action. There's great character moments between Superman and Supergirl and Lois. Um, the fact that Aquaman shows up, we get giant monsters threatening Metropolis. We get a Superman Batman interaction. Like, there's a lot of stuff to like here. Uh, and, and like, I, I wish we had just gone into this story instead of getting that action comic story that was talking about um, Superman and, uh, and his son, John, out in space trying to seal that rift, blah, blah, blah. And Superman's powers might be going wonky and what have you. Maybe that Superman's powers going wonky, whatever, was just foreshadowing for more of what we saw in future state. Because when we see him fighting on War World, he doesn't have anywhere near the power level that we would expect Superman to have. So again, more shades of future state heading down that path. Uh, but I really, I'm really enjoying this. Um, what, like it, if I read this and I read Superman 32 this week, and I didn't know that the same writer wrote both, I would not have guessed that the same writer wrote both because this is good. And that was not. <laughs> and so again, I, I can't help but think that, you know, Philip Kennedy Johnson's trying to, uh, fulfill some editorial dictates or, or editorials asking him to, to address the whole John Kent situation where this feels more like the real story that he wants to tell. So even though I'm not hundred percent on board with the idea of Superman going off planet war world, heading down that path toward future state, because I feel like it's been done before and, and spectacularly, at least this feels like a well put together story that he's passionate about telling as opposed to the paint by the numbers feel of uh, of, of uh, Superman number thirty two, uh, so you take that kind of passion for storytelling and, and great action, and you add in the Daniel Sampier art, where he draws that action just amazingly with some great transitions, especially the tr the the sequence of panels where this giant monster that's attacking Metropolis freezes over a course of like five panels. I mean, the artwork is just fantastic, like 
I love the, the fact that they're it's raining when they're fighting. It's nighttime. Um, um, the colorist Adriana Lucas getting a chance to show off with all these different energies that are glowing and the, they just leap off the page. Like, yeah, this was, this was far and away my favorite, um, DC book this week, the main story, I'll say, yeah. uh, what are your thoughts about the main story? Uh, I, I tell you, there's no question that uh, I think this is a remnant. This is a follow through on what is originally a Bendis plot, but can you imagine if Bendis scripted the dialogue for this story, how, how different it would read? Oh God. I mean, just, I don't want, and, to, I don't want to imagine that. No, I know, but it, it just goes to show that, you know, Bendis has good ideas, but if, if this was a generally a Bendis plot that, uh, you know, that, that, that Philip Kennedy Johnson is taking and running with, uh, thank God that he's, he's putting this, putting the dialogue to it. I, I really love the dialogue here. I, I love this 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 new Kryptonian uh, group of Kryptonians. These Phaeolosians, I guess they're they're an ancient Kryptonians uh, that were sort of a sci- a science colony that that left Krypton thousands of years ago, and they're essentially caught. But they have they they possess the the symbol of Kalal Kalal's family symbol. Uh, Mongol obviously captured them, and then this the new Mongol Mongol killed uh, the fa- the son killed the father, and so. It's quite clear that you know Superman figures out that Mongol likely died, and a new Mongol has taken his place. And just like last issue, where the one person refused to give up their chains, this this uh, uh, this girl uh, Theol- Th- Theola Theola, she doesn't want to give up her chains e- e- either. And she's she's not even I don't think she realizes that she actually has superpowers because obviously on. On War World, it, it's under a red sun, and their powers are kept at bay uh, or minimized, and so she probably doesn't even appreciate that she has these powers as she discovers as as Superman tries to remove her chains. Uh, Daniels impaired uh, artistically. He he, the compassion that Superman renders here, and the way you, the way Superman speaks with compassion and kindness, uh, even and Lois as well. Uh, to this uh, to Theola, who is struggling and and is fearful and is afraid, it's clear that Superman wants to help, and Superman does feel guilty, and Superman knows it's a trap. John Kent, his son, says, "This is a trap." <laughs> you know, this is a trap. Batman tells him, "It's a trap." <laughs> Superman wants the Justice League to come with him to War World. Well, it's like it's like it's fairly obvious this is a trap, and it's a dangerous one because if 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 this energy source, this this, and it's called Genesis. Uh, the the, it's called a Genesis mineral is what the Atlantean scientist uh, called it. Uh, this power source is so incredible that it it can uh, it's it's very dangerous and it's very dangerous to have on Earth. The United States government wants it. Atlantis wants to keep it. Clearly, Superman probably wants it. Uh, wants to remove it himself. I'm I'm curious to see at what point Superman's going to end up in a war world. At some point, and it's obvious why he's going there. He has to go there in order to give hope to all those people. It's now making sense what we saw in Future State. We saw Superman intentionally going to War World to fight in the gladiatorial arena. And why is he doing that? He, Superman needs to win in gladiatorial combat. He needs to inspire the people who are who refuse to give up their chains. This Theola and refuses to give up her chains. Imagine all of them so afraid of Mongol that they're afraid to give up their chains. 
imagine the hope that you have to inspire to get them to throw their chains off. That's what Superman has to do. So he not only has to go there, how do you rescue people that are too afraid to even remove themselves from bondage? That's incredible. So I really like how this issue established the obstacle and the difficulty that Superman's going to have to have because it's one thing to be Superman, but you better be really good at inspiring hope because these, this is a Mongo has a captive audience there that worship him and don't even want to remove their chains. And Superman's going to go and put himself in the middle of that. And we saw a taste of that in future state. I agree with you hundred percent. This is very well set up. Philip Kennedy, Philip Kennedy Johnson has taken this along with Daniel Samper's art and told a fantastic story. The stakes are raised for earth uh, with the Genesis minerals, the stakes are raised for Superman and the Superman family with War World. And my God, you know, uh, this is very well done. Very well done. I agree. Yep, I agree. Uh, the backup is the Passenger Part 4. It's the Midnighter storyline. Becky Clune and Michael W. Conrad, writers. Michael Avon Omin, artist. Takasomi does colors. Dave Sharp on letters. Um, I sound like a broken record here, but Michael Avon Omin is not the right artist for this story. He is not an artist that draws superhero stuff very well. That being said, I felt like this was the easiest to understand of the uh, parts so far. Part four, yeah, part one, two, and three. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're lost if you haven't read any of the Future State stuff. And even if you've read the Future State stuff, it is a very convoluted time travel story and, and kind of hard to follow. Um, this sort of started bringing it together for me a little bit, but it's still a story that if I do want to understand it, I realize I'm gonna have to wait till the whole thing is out and then go back and reread all the future state stuff and then reread this stuff and see if I can kind of put together what's going on with the time travel for Trojan and, uh, and Midnighter and, uh, interest, uh, I don't think it's high enough for me. I, I don't, I don't think I care enough about Midnighter as a character, or the story to go back and put in that much effort. Um, but I don't know. I could be, I could be wrong. Maybe it'll end up being important enough for me to go back and, and read. But uh, at least I felt like when I read this, I didn't feel lost. That's what I'll say about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Uh, and I just, I just, I feel compelled to sum up for people what, what, what it is, what's happened here. And when I sum it up, I'm going to make it sound very simple. And by making it sound really simple, that is me giving an insult to the writing team because they made this ridiculously overcomplicated over over a course of umpteen backups and future state. And it's not, it, there's no reason why we needed to have this plot point explained and we needed this complex time jumping around and all this other nonsense and this occupying two minds at Midnighter. Good grief. The bottom line here is, is that in the future, this Trojan guy is going to build a satellite called Crystallis. He's going to refine the, it, it's going to be used to refine and convert the waste generated by War World. Basically, War World's exhaust, its exhaust is going to be converted into Neridium. And Neridium is something that's like kryptonite. It's capable of not only killing Superman, but eliminating all organic life. It's, that's what Neridium does. And Trojan uses that in an attempt or will use that in an attempt in the future to eliminate all human life because he wants everybody to be a machine. That's really it. This guy's like a crazy Bill Gates, a psychotic Bill Gates. That's really all you need to know. But unfortunately, this guy, this Trojan guy in the future who has already become a robot in the future 
infuses with the mind of future Midnighter, whose consciousness is then transported back in time to the present day. And this is the backup features that we're getting. And, <laughs> and, and through this mess, what, what doesn't, what the, the criticism I have is I don't believe for one second, if with, I cannot see Midnighter, this, this brooding dark person who's gay talking to his arch enemy in his head, bonding, almost like bonding with him, telling him about his, talking about love and his relationship with Apollo. It's, it's so ridiculous. Midnighter would never do that. I just, some of this stuff, I, I know that this, this Trojan's in his head, but you know, you know, Becky Cloonan, I think it's Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad, right? Yep. They write this. Uh, yep. I know that they understand Midrider. I know that they are. They understand the character of Midnighter. I know they do. Uh, but frankly, I, I think it went off the rails here with this this issue. But at least you know everything. At least they they info dumped to try to explain what the hell's been going on so far in a, in a in a more cohesive way. So it's a little bit easier to understand this issue. And uh, incidentally. Uh, incidentally, Trojan created his own boom tube, and the reason why they Trojan kidnapped Mister Miracle, which was baffling last issue, is that they apparently they need a boom tube to boom tube onto Warworld. But now that they created their own boom tube, they don't need Mister Miracle anymore. So this ends with them potentially killing Mister Miracle, uh, and how this lines up with the continuity in the Mister Miracle series that we're reviewing, I have no idea. But there you have it. Yeah, the biggest part, the biggest problem with this, and it's probably a, a byproduct of the narrative being so complicated. This is a very plot-driven story, and if you're a fan of Midnighter, you know you're a fan of Midnighter because he's a really cool character. Um, and the best stories are character-driven, not plot-driven, and this is 100% plot-driven, and that's why I think it just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Harley Quinn number four. Written by Stephanie Phillips, art and cover by Riley Rosmo, colored by Yvonne Placencia, lettered by Anne Roll Design. Um, I don't have much to say about this other than I guess Riley Rosmo's art's growing on me because I thought the art in this issue was fine. Um, and other than that, other than the interaction between Harley and, uh, and Solomon Grundy, which I really enjoyed, I didn't really have much to say. Um, I just thought it was okay. And again, I'm not the biggest Harley fan. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it was, it felt like Harley. It looked like Harley. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know what I missed it again. Just, just okay. But I, I don't think I'm the, I'm the target audience for this being not much of a Harley fan. So I'm sure you have a lot more to, to add well, to that. Uh, uh, I will say that uh, this is part two of No Good Deed. This is Harley Quinn. Uh, last issue, basically, Hugo Strange got the best of Harley Harley Quinn. Hugo Strange has a safe program where he's collecting all these clowns of Gotham and he's going to reform them, uh, but he's really experimenting on them. Harley Quinn wants to make a, she wants to make a good impression as a as a hero now because she's become heroic. She wants to make a good impression on Batman and she just wants to, she wants to collect these clowns and and she's got a new sidekick Kevin who she's you know. Uh, she cares and she wants to help them and she wants to use her background in psychology to, she actually cares and she wants to do her best to help them as opposed Hugo Strange, of course, wants to do the opposite. Well, this entire issue was a little disappointing to me. It's because 
not a lot happens. This entire issue is just Harley Quinn essentially just making her way uh, to Hugo Strange's uh, to safe headquarters where Hugo Strange is to confront Hugo Strange because Hugo Strange kidnapped her sidekick, Kevin, last issue, and she wants to get him back. Now, there are some funny moments here. The funniest moments I have is, well, she, she's playing, she plays chess with Solomon Grundy, and she's, Solomon Grundy is not particularly bright, but Harley Quinn is always constantly talking to herself, and Harley Quinn often finds, discovers the answers to some of her questions, obviously through her own conversations with herself, but, and so Solomon Grundy really doesn't give her any insights, but she thanks him anyway, and again, a lot of this stuff, this dialogue, um, this is missing. I wish it could have a little bit more humor in this issue. But one thing I did find funny, I have to give full credit. She eventually leaves Solomon Grande and uh, and she's worried about Kevin and she should be because Hugo Strange is experimenting on him. But at one point, Harley, Harley Quinn ends up <laughs> making her way to the safe haven and she ends up, uh, she ends up imitating at one point, she get, makes it to the safe house, and she she imitates Batman's shadow by uh, by with her fingers, and she she imitates Batman's shadow to scare away the uh, Hugo Strange's henchmen. I thought that was kind of funny, and she makes her way into the safe house, and you know, again, Riley Rosmo's art here. Uh, there are times where he's I want to give him credit because he's really experimenting with his different what he's doing with the page and the layouts and just the different types of boxes and the shape boxes and he, it's just he's really he's really pulling out all the stops and even with the sound effects and uh just the 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 colors are bright it just is this is He's doing a really good job here. This is definitely a crazy, zany comic. It feels that way. This feels like a Harley comic to me. And um, even here, there's a, there, there's a great elevator scene where you see the elevator levels on the right side of the page. And and you can, it's an elevator fight scene where she's fighting all these minions. And, and it's just the color. It's just beautifully done. And you can see... You can see as the elevator is going to the various levels, she's actually fighting and kicking, kicking the butt out of these guys. And it's done in a crazy zany way. It's, it's not as sexually provocative as the, the, it reminded me a little bit of the scene in suicide squad, the movie where she was in the elevator scene, which was kind of interesting. Uh, anyways, I thought it was well done. This is, uh, this, this isn't necessarily going to win every, anybody over to the series, this particular issue, but I enjoyed it. It, it continues. It continues with the, the story, and uh, it ends with ultimately Harley Quinn confronting Hugo Strange, which I thought she was going to do at the beginning of this issue. So that's why I thought this issue was very decompressed. It probably could have been almost skipped. We could almost go from last issue. We could skip this issue. Uh, but in any ways, it is what it is. It's not the first time a writer maybe sort of threw in a lot of an you know unnecessary exposition uh it was still fun and it, it allowed riley rosmo to continue to impress me with his creativity notwithstanding the fact that i'm not necessarily a fan a big fan of his style but i gotta give him credit with credits too yeah i thought the funniest moment was solomon grundy correcting harley on her grant when she says whoever and he says whomever <laughs> oh, uh, that, that, got a, that got a chuckle out of me i forgot that yeah yeah <laughs> 
All right, moving on. Uh, let's talk about Robin number three next, written by Joshua Williamson. Gleb Melnikov handles the art. Luis Guerrero on colors, which is interesting because Melnikov was doing the colors at first, and I, I commented, I wondered how long he was going to be able to keep it up. Uh, and then Troy Petrie handles the letters. So uh, we know that last issue, Robin, Damian Wayne, uh, was resurrected. It's Lazarus Island, so nobody can die there. And he, basically the rules of this tournament were laid out for him. They can't fight at night, and everybody basically has three lives, like straight out of a video game, right? Well, you want to talk about nothing really happening in this issue and being able to skip and move right on to the next one. Um, yeah, th that you could say the same thing for, for this Robin number three. He strolls around and, and you know, Ravager is trying to convince him he needs to, to make friends and learn how to relax, and that'll help his, his fighting somehow, although he doesn't seem to buy that. And when he calls her out on how, why, she can't explain it. Just She just says, trust me. So it's not clear to me how him making friends or being able to relax would possibly <laughs> exactly. you know, help him be a better Jesus. fighter. Um, and so eventually he leaves the, the beachfront party and, and heads up to uh, – this statue where he can sense that this is where the previous inhabitants of the island used to do their, their rituals. And who does he find there but Connor Hawk. And despite the bonding that they start to have, because basically they are both the sons of, of superheroes whose fathers don't have powers but have high expectations, they have a lot in common is what I'm getting at. And they, they start to sort of bond over that. And then before, and maybe because of this, before they can actually become friends, one of the uh, League of Shadows, Master Dusk, actually shows up. And Damon remembers him from when he was young. And he basically eggs them on to where they, they break the rules and they have a fight. And then uh, Hawk is actually able to overcome Damien, which I find interesting since Damien's supposed to be the best fighter in the, in the DCU. Um, and Hawk basically throws him off a cliff and uh, before Damien can hit the water and, and master dust says, you know, I, I know if we kill you, you'll be resurrected, but what if you just, what if you don't die and you're just in, have to live in pain? Um, so they don't want to actually kill him. They just want to kind of incapacitate him. Um, so they toss him off a cliff, but before he hits the, the water and the rocks below, he's, he's rescued by somebody. And he thinks based on the way he was rescued, you know, somebody comes sweeping in, swinging in uh, on a rope or a, a line or what have you. And uh, so he, you can understand why Damien would think it was his father, but it turns out it's actually his grandfather. And we get the blurb, what's happened to Ra's al Ghul? Like, you know, where's he been? Why is he here? Why did he rescue Damien? I got to be honest, I really don't care. Um, this series is quickly losing interest for me. Um, part of the reason I, I hung on was because I, I do like Connor Hawk as a character. But this version of Connor Hawk that we get from Williamson didn't feel like any version of Connor Hawk that I've ever read before. And so why am I going to, why am I going to hang around? Uh, that being said, the art by Meldikov, the colors are very well done. Um, it's not particularly dialogue heavy, but Troy Petrie is one of the best letters in the business. And he does a, a great job of keeping the story moving, particularly uh, I'll call out the way he lays out the dialogue on the splash page where um, Damien and, and Connor Hawk are sitting on the cliff talking about their dads um, the back and forth is, is laid out very well. You can see there if you're watching us on YouTube. Um, and it really gives a feel of, of the conversation and moves your eye along the page very, very well. So uh, technically, it's a, a pretty well-done comic. 
but uh, the plot is is losing interest for me uh, in a pretty big hurry. I don't care about Damien, and this is not uh, Connor Hawk that I know, so why should I read it? What were your thoughts, Rocky? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm not really sure. I, I the first two issues I thought were were very interesting because I thought it was it was fun. This was going to be a fu- this was going to be a f- that Joshua Williamson. He's never been very good at d- being at building character, Joshua Williamson. At least not to, to my mind. He's he's always come up short on that in that regard. And I thought, well, at least we're going to get a plot centric. We're going to get a fun plot, and it's kind of a crazy Mortal Kombat type of plot. And let's have some fun with it. And I thought maybe we were going to go there. And now it's like I I, I don't care about Razogal either. And Razogal, it's he's not a mystery. He's never really a mystery, Razogal. At least it hasn't been lately. But thing is, we don't know what the hell's going on with the DC Omniverse. We don't know what's normal and what isn't. And so part of the thing is, is that I'm not sure. Are we? Is it supposed to be a mystery that Razogal just shows up? I'm not not really sure. I'm not really sure why. I, you know, I actually was prepared not to take this storyline all that seriously because it is kind of a stupid storyline. If you want me to take it seriously, then I'm gonna then I'm gonna start asking questions that I know Joshua Williamson doesn't have answers for. Namely, you know, how come the best of the best aren't competing on the island? Because they're not. Why? I mean, if it why is it if it, it takes place over a hundred years, who won last time? And they must be immortal because they more aren't you gonna defend your defend yourself? Like, wh- who's the champion? Why isn't Batman, Lady Shiva, John, like all these other it, like I, I got all kinds of questions. Yet now, having said that. Um, I, I don't even want to, I'll focus on what I liked. I, I was really, it, it was interesting to see how much Damien and Connor Hark, Hawk have in common. They really do have both, they have, they, they both have screwed up relationships with their father and they've both been killed. They both come back from the dead. They both, I mean, it's amazing how much they actually have in common, these two. And it is quite interesting. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't, uh, I, but I'm going to hold Joshua Williamson accountable for one thing. According to the rules that he established for this tournament, both of these com- contestants are now disqualified. They fought at night. They're disqualified. Yeah. I mean, I, they're disqualified. You fight at night, you're disqualified. You broke the rules. I mean, I don't know. How are they not disqualified? So neither one of them can win. So at least, or, or is it nobody knows that they fought at night? Like it just seems to me that I mean, why would Connor? Why would Volko tell Connor to attack, uh, attack Damien when he's disqualified? Then, I mean, it just seems to me, I don't know. It just, it just seems kind of forced, just just so we can get rid of Damien, throw Damien off a cliff, crack his back, and so he just a forced way to meet uh, Razo Gall. And so what? Damien's now gonna pull like a Jean called Van Damme and uh, do a do some splits over a couple rocks on the bottom of the by the by the beach with Razo Gall training him, and then he's gonna come back and win the tournament that he should have been disqualified from to begin with. I don't know. Like I don't even know what where their story is supposed to be going. I don't see the point of this. I'm not what I thought this was gonna be. A, is this a character arc? Uh, Damien still is hallucinating seeing uh, Alfred. What's what's that about? So now he he's got Alfred. He's he's hallucinating with Alfred talking to him, and now he's got Raza Gall training him. So he's got a father figure in his head talking to him. He's got Raza Gall, a quasi grandpa figure, and meanwhile he's got the shadow of his of, of his dad in the background. There's a lot going on here, and there's the wrong writer trying to make it happen. But 
that's me being cynical, but hey, I'm 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 I just want to see who kicks ass. I'm in this for the for the Mortal Kombat aspect of it. Yeah, and I'll give I'll cut Josh Williamson a break here. I won't necessarily say it's the right writer. Uh, just to me, I, it's not because I don't think it's a bad comic. It's just about a character that I don't care about. That's, you know, that's me. Uh, all right. Up next, Mr. Miracle, The Source of Freedom, number two, written by Brandon Easton. Fico Asio is the artist. We've got Rico Renzi on colors, Rob Lee on letters. I think uh, the first issue really took Rocky and myself both by surprise. It was a lot better than we uh, expected it to be. Uh, what do you think here of the second issue, Rock? Uh, this, uh, I, I continue to, uh, I, I actually quite enjoyed this. I, 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 I really enjoyed it. Um, one of the, uh, it's, I found it interesting that this, this new character that showed up that claiming to be the, the child of, uh, this, this never freedom claiming to never free claiming to be the, 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 I guess the daughter of, uh, Scott free and big Barda, uh, Ends up apparently is from an alternate timeline, which I'm actually uh, I'm actually kind of glad because I didn't want I didn't want I didn't want this Never Freedom to be the offspring of of Big Bart and Scott Free from from Earth Zero, and so it's from a different timeline, and uh, Shiloh Norman's uh, uh, I guess what do you call it uh, boombox or. Uh, Mother box. Mother box. Thank you. <laughs> Mother box uh, doesn't know how how this this never freedom. Why they end up attacking? Why they? Why she's attacking him? In, in you know in, in another in an alternate reality. It, it so there's all kinds of questions being asked here. Meanwhile, though, what's what's really interesting here and what what uh, writer Brandon Easton does uh, very well. And I just want to. Uh, set this up here is in in the first battle in, in the battle that they have that that Shiloh has with this uh, never never free is he he ends up half his face gets exposed and so the world discovers that he's African American and the most interesting part of the story to me is that is is his reaction to that and and his his agent his agent's reaction to his agent uh uh Vito is you know his press agent you know is trying to deal with that and the way social media reacts to the discovery that Mr. Miracle Shiloh Norman is an African American and 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 I think it's a, a very a very accurate reaction there's positive reactions to it and there's negative reactions to it as you would expect uh in a, in our uh, divisive world and I thought it was very I thought that was handled I think very well uh you got you got the reaction of the world's media to that meanwhile you get uh you get never free and her core members who are powered the uh powered by the uh by the by source energy so she's got these green energy creatures called the, the core they're they they're helping her defeat mr miracle but he keeps using the mother box to jump to different parts of the earth to escape her meanwhile v Vito is uh Vito takes uh Shiloh and takes him to the the old residence of uh, the previous uh, Mister Miracle, and I had to write it down because I, I always forget his name. 
Thaddeus Brown. Thaddeus Brown, thank you. And Thaddeus Brown uh, has has actually had a, a a secret a secret home, a secret location where he actually kept uh, he kept his well, actually his he was even buried there. His ashes, the ashes of Thaddeus Brown, were actually kept in one of his old residences, and and. Uh, what we thought was an urn ends up to be some sort of alternate power source that Mr. Miracle utilizes to ultimately uh, defend himself against against this new Mr. Miracle, this never free. And I thought it was very well. It's Brandon Easton is doing a good job of sort of fans of Thaddeus Brown, because Thaddeus Brown at one point, I believe, trained uh, Shiloh Norman. And so it's it's a way of sort of creating some degree of legacy. That Thaddeus Brown was an older generation uh, hero, and and that legacy is carried forward with uh, with Shiloh. And there's even a great scene with Shiloh uh, talking to his girlfriend because his he had a disastrous date with her last issue that didn't go well, and uh, he's he comes to terms with that and he apologizes for kind of being a jerk in the previous issue. I just thought the character work here continues to be very very good. And I don't think the the politics of this, when he was so worried about the world finding out he was African-American, he didn't want, he liked the anonymity that it brought him and he was afraid to be true to who he really was. I thought that was handled very well. And I think it's, I think it's played very well here. I'm, I continue to be really impressed. I love this headquarters of Thaddeus Brown. I, I love his agent, uh, cares for him. I, I love the, the arts, uh, I think is, is very, is, is so cool. I just the art artistically Afiko Osio. I really like his yep. art. Uh, I really like his art, and yeah, I just man, I, I continue to be impressed. Jace, what about yourself? Uh, I didn't enjoy this issue as much as the first one. Um, and there's a there's a and maybe it's just me nitpicking. Uh, you know, here here's this this guy. So Thaddeus Brown wasn't a hero. He was just an escape artist. He trained both Scott Free and uh, Shiloh Norman. And Scott Free obviously used those powers to become a superhero. And Shiloh's kind of taking a page out of that book, world's greatest escape artist and and hero, as opposed to Thaddeus, who's just a, a showman. Um, so, you know, I, I get that and that's fine. What I don't understand is despite the fact that Never Free, which, first of all, I don't think Scott Free and Barda, not the ones we would know, would ever name their kid Never. Uh, never <laughs> say never, right? So that's, that's just like, what? Um, but then she's obviously from a different timeline. So I would like you was glad it wasn't uh, Jake, you know, their son that we saw in the okay. uh, Tom King and, and Mitch Garrett series, Jacob, but yeah. uh, Shiloh Norman, I, those names, you mentioned them before. I, I don't know. He, he calls her Barbara. Even, I don't even know who Scott or Barbara are. So again, yeah. omniverse, where does this take place? I mean, how does Shiloh Norman not know Scott free? He clearly should, at least in the DC universe that I'm familiar with. So that's true. But, but Whatever. I mean, that's neither here nor there. It's just something that I noticed, and it's it hasn't been made clear. Um, the two, two things that do kind of bother me. Uh, I do find it interesting, and obviously Brandon Easton made race uh, part of this story uh, in the in the first issue, and I thought that was interesting and relevant. Uh, I do agree with you that the social media reaction of people, some people think it's good, some people don't. Um, I thought that was very realistic. But what I don't really get, get or agree with like are you telling me that this skin tight mask that he has previously worn even though it didn't show the color of his skin he has very african-american features 
he has very full lips. He has a very broad nose. Like nobody ever speculated that he was a black guy before. It just seems like this discourse would have happened previously. Um, so again, just kind of a nitpicky thing that yeah. kind of pulled me out of the story a little bit. But I do find that whole aspect of the story, as I said, to be very relevant and very important. It's, it's important to talk about those kind of conversations. Um, the other part of it, though, that like right away when I was reading it, that struck me, and especially when you're talking about what role Shiloh Norman tries to play, right? He tries, it's all about his clicks. It's all about his social media presence. It's all about his popularity. It's all about his celebrity at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So he's having this big battle in Metropolis and he effectively just runs away and leaves a big mess, all kinds of destruction behind him. And I'm not saying it's his fault that the destruction was caused. Obviously he's being attacked by these villains led by Never Free, but he just runs away you know, teleport. He literally tells his mother box, teleport me as far away from here as possible. And I got to think somebody who's as plugged into celebrity and perception. uh, And we all know perception is reality in that world, the world of celebrity rumors start and they're not even true. And it can destroy your career that it's got to look real bad to just run away. Um, And I understand he was getting his butt kicked. Maybe he didn't have a choice, but I just thought that that was interesting. And the narrative didn't necessarily because I thought that he was going to go there when we get the um, we get the news feeds and they start talking about how his identity was, you know, they don't know who it is exactly, but obviously they know it's an, a person of color. And I thought the that that especially because of that, and we know about you know institutional racism, or whatever. They'd be like, oh yeah, and by the way, he ran away. It did bring up the whole thing of stealing other magicians' acts, which maybe had, you know, may not have been as much of a narrative if he wasn't a person of color. Um, but I don't know. I just, I, I, I thought that that would be a bigger thing. Hey, he ran away. There was this huge fight and he ran away. Um, but it wasn't mentioned. Um, but overall I enjoyed it. Uh, you're right about the art. It's absolutely spectacular. Very, very kinetic art, a lot of action. Um, I also think that, uh, that Fico, when, when, uh, when Shiloh does get that call from the woman that he went on that date with Denise, uh, she's beautiful. Like I love the way Fico draws, draws her, man. She, she looks hot. So uh, I appreciated that. And yeah, what, what's to come? I don't know. I'm still interested. Uh, it wasn't that this issue was terrible and it, it totally turned me off and I'm out. Um, but it, I don't think it was as strong as the first issue. Uh, but overall, it was a lot of action, action packed almost from, from start to finish. And so for that reason, there wasn't a lot of time for character moments. Pretty much only got the, the character moments when... Shiloh shows up at Vito's office and, and finds out that, hey, they know you're African-American now. And then a little bit when he was on the phone with Denise, um, we can sort of see a little bit of the true Shiloh Norman. And Denise even comments on it like, oh, yeah, this is this is the guy that I wanted to have a date with. Like, you're actually being real with me instead of just, uh, you know, sp- spouting Hollywood nonsense like we we saw him last time. And he apologizes <laughs> saying, yeah, I sort of forgot how to talk to somebody and kind of normally um, so there were a few character moments, but, but not as much as the first issue, but overall, uh, still really good, still really impressed, uh, especially on the uh, artistic side of things. So, yeah. and, and you hit the nail on the head, uh, cause I, I had read that too, it, how he doesn't know who Scott, Scott free is in big Barda. I mean, if yeah. he's, you know, and he, he's got a, he's got, he's got a mother box that's from apocalypse or new Genesis. Yep. So he must know dark side. And yep. if you know Dark Side, how can you not know Big Barda? Or it just seems very, very odd, very confusing. Yep, yep. very odd. 
Uh, all right. Up next, Justice League number 63, Prisms Part 5, written by Brian Michael Bendis, art by David Marquez, colors by Yvonne Placencia, letters by Josh Reed. Uh, there's also the uh, Justice League uh, Dark Backup, which is written by Ram V. Uh, the art is by Zermonico, which, again, I'm not sure how he's drawing Infinite Frontier and this. Maybe this was done ahead of time because... There's no way with all the characters in Infinite Frontier he could be drawn both at the same time. Uh, colors by Romulo Fajardo Jr., letters by Rob Lee. Uh, what did you think of the main story here, Rocky? <laughs> Predictable? Uh, I, uh, wow. Just nothing, uh, extremely, pre- well, extremely predictable. Nothing happens. I, I said, I said very explicitly in, in when we reviewed the very, the opening issue for it, of, of Bendis's Justice League, and that was issue. It was I don't know. Was that sixty one, fifty? I don't even know. I can't remember. In any event, I said I said that what would likely happen is that we would learn absolutely nothing by the end of this arc about Naomi's homeworld, and in fact, we in fact that's true. We learned absolutely really nothing. Uh, we just learned that Flash was bad at math, and that uh, they they went to the you know you know Brutus from Naomi's homeworld attacked our Earth. And then they went and attacked his Earth, and then they had to come back because it's poison because Flash screwed up on the math, and that's it, that's it, that's that's really it. And at the end, apparently Naomi, who um, proved that she was a young brat, proved that she doesn't know how to listen in this at the, at the end of this issue, she didn't listen to Superman, she didn't follow orders, she overreacted, she wanted to stay and attack uh, Zimbardo, and. Uh, She's proven that she's young and inexperienced, and of course she shouldn't be a member of the Justice League. Uh, nobody in their nobody in their right mind would want her to be on the Justice League. Uh, uh, the exp- there's no explanation as to why they would want her on the Justice League. There's no logic provided as to why they would want her on the Justice League. Uh, I wouldn't even I don't even think this woman should be ma- this this young girl should make teen, would make Teen Titans Academy, except for the fact that she's got this ridiculously high power set. It, it There wasn't even an explanation. You would think that Bendis would have at least maybe Batman or Superman or somebody say the obvious, that, well, maybe it ha- maybe we should have her on the team because we we have to keep an eye on her because she's clearly not particularly bright. She's clearly uh, not, uh, she's, she clearly doesn't know how to handle her powers very well. She's, for, for the umpteenth time, it's an ongoing joke. If you've read Bendis's Young Justice, if you've read his action comics, if you read his Naomi series, Naomi has said multiple times that I'm so new at this. I'm so new at this. She's like a broken record. Uh, over the course of about, I think it was about a year, all of Naomi's adventures that in our time took place over the course of a year, only two days passed in, in Naomi's life. It, it's just, it's insane. Uh, in any event... Beautiful, beautiful art. There are on this thing. There are a, there are a number of pages which I gotta say are there's double page spreads here. Which uh, uh, there's oh I, I should start off by saying that Bendis uses his usual trope by jumping to the end of the story. Has Naomi wake up and then she. And then she's, you know, she can't remember and she talks to Black Canary and then they, they, they recount what happens. And then we got beautiful art by by David Marquez, double page spreads of of a battle that that we already know the ending to. 
that the Justice League is escaping. Again, nothing happens. Nothing happens. They just come back to our Earth. And it's so frustrating. Nothing happens. This is... Um, yeah, uh, I, I just... I, I wish there was something of substance, but, but nothing happens. I, it, I don't... I, <laughs> there's it, it's astonishing that you can have so much dialogue and totally there's it's without substance and yeah i i just i'm i'm just frankly i'm it, it, it it's annoying it's annoying i will say this at the end zambato uh gets pissed off at brutus cuz brutus was Br brutus is a minion of zambato zambato brutus obviously wanted to come to our earth and conquer it without Zimbardo knowing Zimbardo has found out about it and now is going to be utilizing Brutus and this other character to recreate the tech uh, to, to find our world again because Batman took it with him when he came back. So this is just exactly what myself and others have predicted. This is just a way to, to convey no information so that all the relevant information you're forced to buy Bendis's volume two of Naomi whenever that comes out. That's, and, and I hate to say it, but that's what this is. Waste of time, beautiful art, but a complete waste of a series. You don't need to read this at all. And, uh, this isn't news, right? Yeah. Bendis. I mean, this is the guy that took eight issues to cover what Stan and Jack covered in amazing Spider-Man number one. Right. Yeah. Like this is not news that the guy is tells the most decompressed stories of, of anybody working, but it's it, you're right. It's super frustrating because there are the the kernels of a good idea here and he's wasting great art by oh. David Marquez. Um, but he can't, I mean, even when Marquez gets to give us those big splash pages, those big double page spreads, like I said, last, last issue, he, like, I don't know exactly the way they're working. He's worked with Marquez for a long time. But even that is hard to follow. Like, you know, there's all these insets and what order do you read it in? And it's just, it's messy. Even though it's it's it looks great, it's messy in terms of the narrative and, and how you read it. So in my mind, you want to know how to make this better, DC? Where's David Walker? I know you have his number. He co-wrote Naomi with... Bendis, and that's why I think Naomi actually was a, was as big of a hit as it was, um, because again, I think Bendis, you know, Rocky said it earlier, he's a good idea guy, but technically, in order to actually write the script and have the comic make sense technically and have things actually happen and move the t narrative along at anything other than a snail's pace, you got to bring a co-writer on for Bendis. He's just incapable of doing it by himself. He just, I, I don't. I don't understand. I mean, I, I know that a lot of people, they laud his character work and, oh, and I, I even said earlier, you know, you, you want a story that is character driven rather than plot driven. Um, and that's what Bendis is trying to do. The problem is he's not doing a very good job of it to go back to something else. Rocky said earlier, he doesn't know these characters well enough. Um, and I don't know how you can say, how do you not know Batman or Superman well enough at this point? Um, I feel like everybody who's a comic fan should know them well enough at this point, but you know, maybe there's a difference between knowing them and being able to write them accurately. So there are some cool moments, um, but, oh, and the art is great. Like, uh, like Rocky said, but overall, yeah, it just feels like predictable and paint by the numbers. And yeah, especially when we started off and Naomi was back in the, 
the Justice League um, headquarters in the Hall of Justice, I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. Bennis is going to start, you know, at the end and then flash back. Yep. Like, you don't have to do that every time. You can, Brian, you can just start at point A and tell the, the story sequentially and get to point B. Without any flashbacks of yesterday, two weeks ago, a month ago, two years ago, you can just tell the story in order. That's allowed. You can do that. Maybe just once in a while for a changeup, just just to do something different. You don't always have to flashback. So predictable and tired at this point. And and honestly, that's how I feel when I read Bendis's work now. Mm-hmm. I just feel tired. You know, it's the same old thing, uh, time and time again. Uh, mm-hmm. Super decompressed. You got to read six issues to actually get a chunk of story. And, you know, we know we're going to get extraneous dialogue that's not needed. We know that that dialogue these days, it wasn't always the case back in the day where it was, you know, pretty on point, but now it's going to feel awkward and dated. Um, And yeah, it's going to take forever for something to happen. And at the end of the day, what happens is exactly what you expect. Naomi joining the Justice League. I I don't know why Bendis, if he's got, if there's a, like, like, for example, the, the page that I'm showing now and for those listening uh, there's all the members of the Justice League are surrounding Naomi, who's on a bed, and there's uh, there's essentially there's seven members of the Justice League talking to Naomi, who's on the bed, and on the page, Bendis absolutely seems intent on making sure that every single character blurts out something, even if it's totally useless, whether it's an uh or a, it's it's ridiculous. He he doesn't seem to understand that we don't need to hear from. Everybody doesn't need to talk all the time. It, it's like he's keeping no. track. Oh, so, oh, 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 Flash never said something in two panels. He's got to utter something. You know, it's like, it, it's literally like he really is scripting a, a, an episode of Friends where somebody has to blurt out something. You know, just let the story tell itself and, and don't have nonsense dialogue. It's just, it's so frustrating. Like saying, and the only way to really experience it, I hate to say it, is to read it. But then that would mean I'd have to recommend it. And I, and I can't in good conscience, frankly, do that. But hey, look, if you're a Naomi fan, okay, you're going to want to probably pick this up, even though I got to tell you, you're not missing anything. You're really not missing a heck of a no, lot. You're not. But, but whatever, go ahead and pick it up. But you're not missing much. No, you're not. I, th- I, I mean, all you have to do is, is, if you're listening to this, just jump over to the YouTube channel and look at the page that, that Rocky has up right now. <laughs> and just see, I mean, it, it's covered the art is covered in word balloons. It is so unnecessary, completely unnecessary. Okay. Uh, anyway, moving on to the backup. As I said, Ram V, Zermonico on art, Ramula Farda Jr. on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Uh, this was okay. Uh, probably my least favorite part of the story so far, um, only because kind of like the, the first, uh, the first uh, story in this issue, nothing really happens. We do get um, some girl showing up at the end that is attacking some cult with Batman looking on that has me intrigued. Um, technically, it's a great story, just like Ron V usually does. Uh, and the art by Zermonico is great as well. Um, but all this does when I read this is it, do- it doesn't feel like a big enough chunk of story. And I end up wishing that this was the main story. And, the, and the, what Bendis did in his main story could have easily fit in this same amount of pages as the backup and we wouldn't lose anything, nothing. (laughs) Just cut out the extraneous dialogue, cut out the double page spreads, put that as the backup 
and let Ram V work his magic on the Justice League Dark and the main story. I'd be much happier. Very, very high quality story. Um, and, and even in just these few pages, we get more happening than we did in, in the, uh, in Bennis's story. So yeah, Justice League Dark, I've said it before. I've said it, I'll say it again. It needs its own book. What are you waiting for, DC? Yeah. Uh, I'll just build on that. One of the things that's established here is that uh, we know that Merlin, last issue, Merlin stole a book that uh, gave him the location of some further hidden magics uh, in Atlantis. And and in this issue, uh, John Constantine at the beginning very cleverly gets them out. They're sort of trapped in the library. Uh, the And he he breaks the fourth wall by, just like last issue, they, they, they read they actually read Ram V's script <laughs> in this issue. John Constantine writes them out of the trap that they're in, in the library. It's kind of interesting. And this ties into future state in a way that, uh, one of the reasons, one of the weaknesses that Merlin has is that he doesn't have a seer. Merlin cannot see into the future. Merlin cannot, uh, and that, because if you recall at the end of future state, in order to save, the, the members of Justice League Dark, Dr. Fate, Kalina Sir, makes a deal with Merlin and says, spare my friends and I will be your seer. Because one thing, you because Merlin Merlin can't use the helmet of fate. O- only Kalina Sir can. And so, and and that's the one thing that Merlin can't access is the, is the helmet of Naboo and, and to peer into the future. And so that's one of the things that, that's why it's interesting here that they... they Merlin is way ahead of them and he's 12 steps ahead of them. And the only way they're going to get ahead to even compete with Merlin is to actually peer into the future. And they're, they're utilizing that power of the power of fate here through the helmet. And that's, what's, that's, what's interesting. And that's what they're attempting to do. And what they see when they look into the future is they see the 13th night. And this 13th night was the 13th Templar night that was protecting, that was actually protecting the, the, the sword Excalibur that, that Merlin, that Merlin actually finally retrieved, and then Merlin uh, killed this thirteenth knight, but she she didn't die, and so so she's she's now uh, at some point she's I'm assuming she's going to meet up with with Justice League Dark, and she's going to, uh, but in in this particular scene she she's uh, she's I think she's trying to she's trying to get a hold of. Uh, uh, I think she's trying to find Merlin here, but but obviously, like you said, Batman shows up, and that's that's very interesting. Why Batman would show up, uh, that is very interesting because I I don't know why Batman would know anything about what's happening with uh, with Merlin, uh, let alone what's going on in that church. So the plot thickens because he's Batman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But this this is interesting. I mean, all these plots are moving together, and again. We're we're moving toward future state, and you know, uh, you know, again, I, uh, I, I just I wonder how accessible this is to new readers. Maybe just coming in cold, it might be pretty tough. But I mean, for uh, readers like us who've been following it, it's much more. I th- I suspect it's much more enjoyable for us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, moving on. Batman Reptilian number one. Uh, so I think a lot of people have been looking forward to this as soon as it got announced by Liam Sharp that he was working on a new Black Label book with Garth Innes. And uh, we finally have it. 
so Liam is fully painting this uh, digital painting and that style that you saw in uh, toward the end of his uh, Green Lantern, the Green Lantern run with uh, with Garth Ennis. He's continuing that style and going even a little a little crazier with it uh, in terms of this is dark, this is moody, this is very broody and uh, you know Gotham City and um, he can kind of let loose and you know that that whole idea of uh, you know Batman reptilian and is it a, a horror story and there's a lot of shadow and uh, a lot of blacks and whatnot. So the art is is fantastic. It is amazing. Uh, the skylines look suitably gothic, like Gotham City should. Batman is a very imposing and scary figure a lot of times. So it's it's fantastic. I love kind of the stylized. Uh, character designs he's using for some of these classic Batman villains. They, they look different than maybe you're used to seeing them. Penguin's got a, a giant beak, for lack of a better term. The Joker looks crazy with this big nose and giant lips. Scarecrow looks like he's wearing pantyhose on his head. Uh, I especially love the way he draws Mad Hatter with this top hat that's like three feet high. <laughs> it's just It's just fantastic. It's really great, moody art. Uh, in terms of the story, I mean, it's Garth Ennis writing a story about Batman. So it's pretty dark and it's pretty, uh, I don't, I don't want to say it's, it's overt, overtly violent, but there, there's a lot of, um, a lot of implied violence. Um, and he sort of plays that up to humor at, at various times. Batman's talking to Alfred about a 911 call where a bunch of, his villains were found assaulted and gutted and uh, Alfred says dead. He goes, just mutilated. Did you do it? You know, it's like, <laughs> no, Batman, of course, Batman didn't do it, but you know, it's, it's those kind of sort of uh, funny moments that dark humor, I guess you'd call it that Ennis is so, so great about. Um, so I, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was really good. The opening scene where Batman confronts this, this boxer who had sexually assaulted a couple of prostitutes and, and he has some slick lawyer that gets him off. Um, and so Batman confronts him, um, and then basically calls him out for being a coward. Um, that sort of sets the tone. Like it, it's, this is not, this is not your usual, you know, regular DC universe, Batman who, uh, well, especially back in the day when he, he played more by the rules, he's, he's, you know, much more powerful. Now we've talked many times about the power creep of Batman and how he's the most powerful character in the DC universe these days. And he can do anything. Um, this is a different sort of Batman. This is a Batman that, that very much, uh, the, the line between right and wrong. It's, it's, it's not quite so easily defined. It's, it's a little blurry. Um, and I, you know, you would expect that from Garth Ennis. So I think this is a, a success. I think that a lot of people are going to be talking about it this week. Um, there's a uh, Bill Sienkiewicz cover, which uh, shows Killer Croc on it, which I'm, again, not not sure. Is that where the reptilian part comes in? I mean, Croc shows up here, but not not in any kind of uh, important way. You know, no more so than Poison Ivy or Two-Face or Mad Hatter or any of the rest that I, that I mentioned. So, uh, yeah, I, th I thought this was really great. I mean, uh, Liam was nice enough to share some preview pages with me a couple months ago. Um, and now I'm, I'm, I was blown away by the art then and now seeing it all together, the whole story and the, the dialogue and, and whatnot. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I think a lot of people are going to be talking about the, this book this week. So what did you think, Rocky? 
Uh, I thought this was really good. I thought this was a... I can't believe that this is actually... I'm stunned to acknowledge that this is actually a a take on Batman that I actually quite like. It's actually kind of a... I don't know. I hesitate to call it a unique take on Batman, but it's it's an interpretation of Batman I haven't actually really been... We haven't really got a lot of before in my mind. Uh, first, I want to give a shout out. To, I love the tribute to Steve Dillon, uh, Liam Sharp's a tribute. Uh, it's for Steve Dillon. Steve Dillon, of course, passed, I think, a couple years ago. Uh, Steve Dillon was a great collaborator with uh, Garth Ennis uh, on, on many a project. And uh, and this uh, apparently this was a project meant for Steve Dillon at one point. I didn't know that. But in any event, I thought that was a nice shout out at the beginning. But... What I like about this Batman, you hit the nail on the head. This is not your mainstream DC Universe Batman at all. This is a Batman that has a very dark sense of humor. He is hard and fast and no nonsense. He is blunt. He is direct. He insults criminals. He thinks criminals are stupid. He thinks they have a low IQ. He he refuses to kill them, not because he's being nice, but because he wants them to live and to suffer. That's why Batman never kills, and I've never thought of it that way before. What a what an interesting take. You know, I always think, well, Batman doesn't kill because he's going to become what he, he, you know, he might, you know, no, 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 no. He doesn't kill because if he kills them, that will stop their suffering, and he's going to make them suffer. And that's what he does with that boxing champion who gets off for raping two girls because he paid off. He uses his monies to, to, to like, sort of like uh, to to hire people to intimidate the witnesses and everything else. This is Batman who intimidates the hell out of people and he humiliates the uh, this boxer and he gets this boxer champion to, to assault him. And of course, uh, Batman just moves away and he calls it you know self-defense and this boxer ends up hurting himself. It's fantastic. Like you said, right away, we know that this Batman's different. This Batman is a hardcore, darker Batman, and he doesn't care what happens to the criminal. He'll ensure that they will not die, but that doesn't mean that they're going to enjoy living. And that's that's what I like about it. That's actually the type of dark Batman that you would expect who went through the trauma that young Bruce Wayne did. And that's what I really, really like about this. And there's a character, Constantine Volkoff, that Batman is looking into was a former member of the Scarecrow gang and Batman wants to recruit him to infiltrate uh, the infiltrate the, the Joker's gang. <laughs> and as part of the, as, as part of the, his investigation, uh, looking into what, what exactly happened to all these villains. Cause the, a lot of the roads got the Joker, the Riddler, a lot of them were, were badly injured. Uh, and there's a mystery as to who who is behind it. Batman doesn't so much care that they were injured. Uh, he does, and and again, he he wants them to live, but he wants them to live so that they can suffer. As far as I'm concerned, anyways, I really like this. The, the I don't know why they call it Batman Reptilian. I'm assuming that's because maybe, like you said, maybe a a reptile or or a killer croc is going to be the main bad guy. Uh, one can assume. I don't know. But right now, this really whets my appetite. Simply for the characterization, I don't even, at this point, I'm so 
refreshed. I'm so pleased with this characterization of Batman. This is a nice, fresh take on Batman. A Batman who's kind of an asshole, but kind of isn't. And he's just hes just on the cusp of being a murderous bastard, but he's going to pull back because he'd rather opt for a torturous life for the criminal than, than a quick death. I love it. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's where the reptilian, maybe he's cold-blooded. Batman, this Batman is cold-blooded. Yeah, maybe. So possibly. Uh, all right, moving on. We have Batman Superman number 19 written by Jean Luen Yang. Uh, this, this book jumps across different timelines and we have different artists for the different timelines. So Emmanuel Lupacino, Lupacino uh, Steve Lieber, Derek Robertson, and Kyle Holtz handle the pencils. We have Matt Santarelli, Steve Lieber, Derek Robertson, and Kyle Holtz on inks. Sabine Rich does the colors, Seda Temafonte on letters. Uh, and we should also mention that it was announced earlier this week that, or last week, I should say that Batman Superman is coming to an end with issue number 22. And we know the, I think the last two issues are going to be a calendar man story. So I guess this story arcs wind is going to wind up next issue with issue 20, which would still make it uh, what? 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. That would make it a five issue. And then two issues left. So I, I, I mean, I, I guess when DC goes to collect Gene Nguyen Yang's Batman Superman, they'll just collect all seven issues in one I trade guess. paperback. Yeah. So anyway, what did you think of this, Rocky? I actually, uh, I, I, I actually enjoyed this. I, I've been, uh, I was, I thought maybe, uh, I was maybe a little bit unfair in my criticism last issue. I thought maybe this thing sort of dragged on a little bit longer than it needed to. But but this was fun. This was fun. Uh, essentially, this is this involves we we get to the secret of this issue of this arterial character who was essentially a, a a person that became obsessed with sort of creating the perfect world, and he did so by sort of uh, creating different movies and taking taking the best parts of each individual movie, i.e., the best part of each universe each world to create one perfect world and he he does it through the use of this phantom zone crystal and uh, through the use of this phantom zone crystal he uh that's how he sort of plucks f from different timelines and, and different different stories the best parts of every story to create the perfect world and and this uh again uh the the benefit of this type of story that uh gene lang is is telling is that you get so many different styles of art and and it works because you got Lapacino, you got Lieber, you got Robertson, Kyle, you got Hotz, you got all these different artists and that's because they're dealing with different different timelines, different types of stories and so naturally you're going to have just like you have different types of movies, you have different types of of art in comic books and you have the film strip going through all of their adventures and as they're going through the various, uh, the different types of movies and different adventures, it works really well. Lex Luthor, who was Dr. Adam in a, in a previous adventure, in the previous issue, he ends up sacrificing himself this issue, uh, which is kind of ironic, <laughs> given the fact that he always felt that, that people, that uh, he makes the comment that it's ironic that he's going out uh, for 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 being the type of person that he would routinely type of criticize. But in any event, it was, there, there was humor in this issue. It was kind of, it was, it was, uh, I thought it was well done. I, I, I love Westerns. I, I like the Rocketeer and we, we sort of get a combination of that because we go to the planet Ran and we see Alana, daughter of Sard Sardath. Uh, so we, we get, we get her and then we get El Diablo in this great Western 
And all the while, they're chasing this Phantom Zone crystal in order to get the crystal, in order to, to prevent the destruction of all these worlds and, and prevent Arterio from, from creating and destroying all these worlds and just creating one massive one. Jean Lun Liang is uh, focusing on the fact that Superman himself refuses to take up Arterio, Arterio's offer to... Uh, he, he says to, Sup to Superman, look, I'll make you an offer. I'll create the perfect world that you want uh, with a lot of elements that you like, but we're going to have to sacrifice Batman's world. And you got to remember that Superman and Batman are from different worlds. They technically don't know each other very well in this particular story. But Superman, of course, true to his character, doesn't do that. He refuses to give in. That's Yang's way of emphasizing the true, the true, uh, the goodness of Superman. And again, this has so much action, so much adventure. And uh, ultimately, uh, again, I, I do feel it could have ended this issue, but it ended once again on another cliffhanger, this time teasing Etrigan the Demon, uh, who's going to be, we're going to be seeing, I guess, in the final issue. Again, very adventurous, very creative. This is a fun story. I think this is going to read really fun as a trade a seven-issue trade. It will be well worth anybody's investment to pick up the trade. I might even buy it uh, myself because it's, it, it is a lot of fun and it would definitely be a really good gift. I find that nowadays I'm very picky with comics that I gift, that I give as presents to people because I find even six-issue story arcs are inaccessible, quite frankly. This is something that's totally accessible. This story is going to be a it's going to be a very good seven issue, a good read, a lot of fun, and it's 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 and I don't I know that even before I, I even before I going to read the the final issue of uh, Yang's run. So uh, overall, I'm pretty impressed artistically and narratively. Yeah, I mean the only negative I'd say is you know we didn't get any of Reese art in this issue, and you know I'm a big fan of of his art, but uh, I love the idea of these different artists coming in and doing the different. Uh, different eras, you know, obviously somebody does the, the Rand scene, somebody does the, I think it's Derek Robertson that does the, uh, the El Diablo scene. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it works really, really well. The cool thing about the, the Etrigan that's coming, you know, we, we know from what we see in the last pages, this isn't the brightly colored demon that we, you know, all kind of know and love. So it's going to be a different version, just like we've gotten these different versions of, of these characters that we know, you know, I mean, see, who would have thought, I was going to see Batman and Robin in a cowboy hat. You know, it's, it's fantastic. So I think this is a really fun story by Yang. Um, I, I agree with Rocky. Uh, maybe he just had one Batman Superman team up story to tell, and this is it. And that's why the series is coming to a, a close, but I'm going to be sad to see it go because this has been just a fantastic series ever since Yang came on with this idea. Um, I will say one other thing that, that Rocky didn't mention. We, we, you know, we learned about the uh, Autor.io, uh, you know, supervillain, and and he is sort of a, uh, he's, in a way, he's sort of a victim. The guy inside the actual armor. We find out he's son of the World Forger. So if you read Scott Snyder's Justice League, you'll know what that's all about, and some of that played out in the pages of Dark Knight Death Metal as well. And when he sort of showed up on one of these Earths, and you know, he he. Had, he had at one point been known in, in the omniverse and been worshiped and that kind of fell away and he was feeling lonely and unrecognized. And he, he said he found a new house of worship. It was actually a film. It was a theater, you know, in, in like the twenties or thirties when film was huge, when it was first burst on the scene. And 
So for him, that that reminded him of the adulation he used to have, and that's kind of how he fell in love with movies and what how supposedly the whole motif of the story. And uh, he even says, you know, as as the the house of worship that eventually faded away too. You know, we know movies got less popular, multiplexes instead of one screen theaters took over and what have you, suburbs and and all that. Uh, but his love of that kind of manifested itself and and gained sentience and became this armor that then wanted to undertake this diabolical plan that he, he had. So I, I love that Yang kind of tied it in to what's going on in the greater DC universe that in that way, by making Autura.io um, kind of this uh, son of the son of the world forger. So yeah, thought it was really fantastic. I'm going to be sad to see it go. I'm, I'm also very, very curious to get to that calendar man story to see well, that, you know, like I said, maybe Yang just had one idea for a story or one and a half ideas enough to do a two-story calendar man story. Like, you couldn't keep going? Uh, <laughs> uh, kind of disappointing. So, uh, anyway, on to the last book we're going to talk about. It's a, it's an anthology, Wonder Woman, Black and Gold. Uh, so, we have four stories here. Mother's Daughter, written by A.J. Mendez, art by Ming Doyle, lettered by Becca Carey. What Doesn't Kill You, written by Nadia Shamas, art by Morgan Beam, lettered by Ariana Marr. I'm Angelus, written by John Arcudi, art by Ryan Sook, lettered by Michael Heisler. Golden Age, written and illustrated by Amy Reeder, lettered by Gabriella Downey. And then The Wager, written and illustrated by Becky Cloonan, lettered by Pat Brousseau. Uh, some really great variant covers. We've got a uh, regular cover by Jen Bartel, and then we've got a variant by y- Yannick Paquette, Joshua w- Middleton, Ramona Fraden with Sandra Hope, and Trish Mulville. And uh, I, of course, ordered the Ramona Fraden cover because she's amazing. Uh, I love Ramona Fraden. She, I've met her. She's awesome. And she drew the first comic I ever read. And I cried when I met her. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit. Uh, I, was, I was pretty overwhelmed. Yeah, she's awesome. So anyway, uh, I, I'm i not going to go over each of these stories individually. Um, if you want to, Rocky, you, you can, obviously. But um, I'm just going to speak in general about the overall success of this i i think first of all the idea of going with just black and white with with a gold color works really really well i think it works perfectly for for wonder woman um it works much better than the superman red and blue series and i think these stories are of higher quality than the superman red blue um and i think overall the the uh the story, like I, I couldn't even necessarily pick a favorite. I mean, these are great. The first one, mother daughter, is is Wonder Woman going back to meet her mom um, and hang out with her in sort of a Themyscarian type uh, atmosphere, but really it's like this house, this cabin in the woods, um, and it it shows their their love for each other as mother and daughter. Um, the second one is probably my my least favorite, uh, and has to do with with uh, Wonder Woman and, and Cersei, her uh, longtime nemesis. And I thought that one was, was okay. Um, I'm Ageless by John Arcudi. The best thing about that is the Ryan Sook artwork. Seeing Ryan Sook artwork in black and white with some gold highlights is absolutely fantastic. Um, there's a double-page spread where they're in the Justice League satellite that I would love to have just the line art of that like hanging up on my wall uh, of my studio because it is just amazing like maybe my my favorite double page spread that ryan sook has ever done i mean it is it is that great but basically that story just talks about how wonder woman is 
ageless. And Batman kind of calls her on that. Like, how could you care about humans when you don't, when you don't die? So I thought that one was really fantastic. There's a golden age story with, uh, with Wonder Woman and Etta Candy. That's uh, a lot of fun. Um, and then there's one that sort of harkens back to, uh, it's kind of a trope. Uh, we've seen it before where teammates or, uh, partners on the police force or what, what have you make, make a bet on what they can get a criminal to admit or not admit or something like that. And Wonder Woman and Batman make a bet like that. Um, and it, it, it I, I don't want to get into the details of it, but it's, pr- it's pretty fun. So I don't know, maybe it's the fact that Wonder Woman is an easier character to write, that these writers are giving us more interesting and diverse stories. But yeah, this is well worth picking up as opposed to the, the Superman red and blue that it's, they're just wildly inconsistent, but I didn't think there was a bad story in the bunch on, on these. So uh, anything to add there, Rocky? I know I, you know, I, 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 I'm a little bit more hard on it than you. I, I will say this, it, it, this is beautiful. I, I agree with you on the yellow and the white. It just pops off the page. It looks really fantastic. Uh, it, it really is. And quite frankly, Wonder Woman deserves this. If Wonder Woman needs this type of attention, the good thing about this is that different in- incarnations and interpretations of Wonder Woman, I think, are very important. Um, and and this this gives this gives you that. And it's nice to have it's nice to have this focus. There is, uh, I will say that the best story is the one where the Wonder Woman is, you know. Uh, when Batman confronts her about, you know, you're, you're so old, you know, how, how do you know, you know, why would you care if you're immortal? You've lived for thousands of years. That, that, that was probably my favorite story. It was also the best drawn. Um, the rest of it here, I thought this was, um, I, I guess I've, I, I've seen all these things before, to be honest. Uh, but I, I like the different artistic styles. Um, but uh, again, I would, I, I would just, I would, much prefer to have one massive Wonder Woman graphic novel than uh, a series of short excerpts uh, l- like this. But, um, but hey, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's good. It, a lot of this stuff, uh, I put it in the same category with the, the Batman uh, and, and, the, and the Superman anthologies is that, you know, if you, you know, if you just want a snapshot of who this character is, these are absolutely excellent buys. And I think Wonder Woman is Wonder Woman. This is a long time coming. This is by far the most gorgeous. I think the covers. I hope the spec market picks up some of those covers because, like you said, they're they're absolutely gorgeous. Those some of those, those covers. And uh, yeah, it's too bad. We, we we just part of it is that we don't have the time to go through every single story here. But artistically, I mean, these these covers are fantastic. And Ramona Fradden, <laughs> you got me on her. Uh, you know, it's nice to see her because I back from the she's she's a famous uh what for back in the day in the silver 70s, age right? so 60s silver 60s? age Sil- yeah. Silver she age? did yeah, yeah extensive, extensive work on on aquaman and plastic man yeah. metamorph i think she drew i think she drew the first ever issue of metamorpho like his first appearance wow yeah and she did I, she did a long run on adventure uh aquaman when he was in adventure comics yeah no that's, yeah, it's she's yeah, she's a legend. And yeah, I, I agree with you. This is a long time coming for Wonder Woman. And so as much as I feel like these sort of limited color palette things need to go away for a while and give them a rest, 
I am glad that this one is, is seen the light of day because Wonder Woman hasn't ever had one of these before. But uh, yeah, and, and it works a lot better than the Superman one. But, you know, the first issue of the Superman Red and Blue was probably the best. And then they kind of got a little less in quality as they went along. So I just wonder if that's going to happen with, with Wonder Woman. Um, uh, I was, my, my personal wish is that I wish, and I wish they would do this with the Superman anthologies too. And they do it a little bit with Batman, but uh, I'd like them to, to take, to write controversial stories about these characters instead of just going so vanilla sky with them and so generic. And don't get me wrong. There's, there's, there's nice tastes. There's, there's some interesting takes, but nothing really, uh, this is where they should be experimenting with more radical interpretations of the characters in my view, in my view, uh, because I, I look at what Garth Ennis did with uh, Batman Reptilian, you know, having a, having a more aggressive interpretation of Batman why not throw? Why not have a writer do that in an anthology? Why not have a more aggressive interpretation of Wonder Woman in an anthology, or even Superman? I, I think I think something an opportunity is lost with these anthologies. They take the they take the easiest way out, and I just find it I just find it I, I think it's a missed opportunity, you know. Not to take away from the writers and the work that they've done with these stories, but uh, I would encourage them to maybe think outside the box a little bit. So you want the uh, super, or you want the uh, Wonder Woman, Maxwell Lord sitting in a diner eating pancakes, talking about the fact I snapped your neck story? Sure, why not? In fact, uh, you know, or even uh, even have a story where Wonder Woman uh, has to use lethal force again, or uh, or or just have her uh, have her surprise somebody uh, instead of engaging in diplomacy, uh, you know, uh, you know using a different tactic people forget that wonder woman i could go off on a wonder woman tangent i could i don't want to talk forever but she's 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 got a lot of weapons in her arsenal and uh she's she's and i and i think that the peaceful warrior i think there's too much focus on the peace and i'll leave it at that <laughs> yeah i mean the other part is editorial you know they probably want these stories to be pretty accessible and yeah and they probably want to keep them away from that but i agree with you if, if we're talking about it all depends on who they're trying to target. Yeah, well, look, yeah, look at Wonder Woman 1984. We have an entire third act where Wonder Woman has no action. She literally, she gives a speech at the end in Wonder yeah. Woman 1984. Yeah. That's 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 what we're talking about. Corporate won't allow it. When when they won't even allow action in a movie, it's, uh, yeah, whatever. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you got anything else coming up this week you want to plug before we oh, get out of man. here? Oh, uh, man, I, I might do some individual uh, reviews of some uh, indie indie comics and uh, I might do a, a more uh, I might do an in more an in-depth uh, lead up review to on some of the digital uh, infinite the infinite frontier digital series that were that came out in the last five or six weeks uh, we've not been reviewing those I might I might just put yeah. those all together and review those leading into the uh, infinite frontier number one that we reviewed today so what about yourself? Right, well, what are you up? Uh, yeah, I'll just mention the uh, interview I had with Joshua Dysart that came out last Sunday, Bad Idea Takeover. It's the first time Josh has uh, talked about his new upcoming title from Bad Idea, Odin's Eye. doesn't come out till December, so I'm sure I'll re-release that episode uh, at some point. But you can check it out on YouTube, uh, on, the, on the, the Comic Source YouTube channel, or you can listen on any podcast platform. It's very much worth your time. Josh and I chat for over an hour about the uh, the story, the themes, inspiration. Uh, he goes into 
a lot of detail on that. Not so much on uh, what we're going to see beyond the first issue because he wants everybody to be surprised. Uh, but it's a great conversation. And as I said, it's an, it's an exclusive. It's the first time Josh is talking about the project. Uh, and there's also a link in the show notes to a, a little sort of uh, teaser trailer that he put together on his YouTube channel that shows a bunch of the Thomas, Tomas, sorry, the Tomas Girello uh, line work for that series, which is absolutely fantastic. So, um, and I should also have some other interviews coming uh, later this week or, uh, or next week, but a lot of things still up in the air, still putting the final touches. Uh, but I did want to let everybody know about that uh, Joshua Dysart interview because it's uh, fantastic. So uh, that's going to do it. For this episode, everybody, I know we went a little long. There was tons of books to talk about, so uh, we hope you enjoyed it as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later, guys. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.